I am your host, Lev Polyakov at Lev on Twitter with uh, Pepe the Frog on the side over here, uh, or Kermit the Frog, or whichever whichever transformative animal you want to uh, you want to talk about here. It is an amazing, great pleasure to have with us two brand new guests for the Break the Rules experience, uh, Pastor Paul Vanderclay and Derek of uh, Myth Vision, Derek Lambert. Both of you guys I'm very big admirer of, so it's a, it's a great pleasure to have you here with us, as well as the wonderful Giovanni Penacchietti all the way live, and Neil Gnostic and Foreman joining us. So to start off, uh, Pastor Vanderclay, you are a pastor of the Living Stones Christian Reformed Church in Sacramento, California. You are a uh, wonderful, prolific YouTuber talking about a lot of things that gets the old noggin joggin. And Derek, you also get my noggin joggin with uh, every episode of Myth Vision that comes out. So I thank Gnostic Informant for introducing me as well as... Uh, well, as well as Uber Boyo, because Uber Boyo, I think, was the first person to kind of get this ball rolling. And what Break the Rules is, for those who don't know, for those who are either from Derek's or uh, Paul's side of the fence, Break the Rules combines different viewpoints together, different people from different walks of life, both on the right, the left, the fringes, the not-so-fringes, and we're trying to figure out what all of this is about. So, once again, thank you so much good for luck. joining me. Uh, yes, good luck. <laughs> Good luck, Chuck. And speaking of Chuck, don't forget to sneed those super chats right now so that Break the Rules can grow. And patreon.com slash break the rules. Of course, become a patron. You will not regret it. And of course, subscribe to this YouTube channel right now. I don't know what you're doing if you're not subscribing. Anyway, let's get, before we get to the main shindig here, just a very brief introduction from um, Paul and uh, Derek. Uh, go, Paul. Um, my name's Paul. I'm, like I said, the pastor of Living Stones Christian Reformed Church in Sacramento, California. I grew up in New Jersey. I was, I did foreign missions for a while and I've been in here at this church for almost 25 years. I got onto YouTube first with the Freddie and Paul show, which you can still find on my channel. And then watching what was happening around Jordan Peterson and wanting to do a little bit of commentary on his biblical series. And that sort of started a ball rolling. That's kept rolling and not quite sure where it all goes nice sounds good and uh derek your uh intro as well uh, what do i say uh i was uh evangelical most of my life i'd say from a youth uh went through various denominations ended up in a calvinistic position i was reformed for many years uh at a pca presbyterian church I was excommunicated for certain eschatological views, which caused me to be reprimanded by my elders. Uh, but I thought I was following the truth, the scripture over man. And uh, long story short, I felt ostracized. So I went on this journey of self-discovery and looking for what is the truth? What, what can we find out about the world? Which led me down a long path of researching in areas I would never have been learned or never been taught within the church. Paul does enter some of those areas, by the way. Uh, it's pretty interesting to see a reformed guy do that, which I commend you for. But uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I, I, I have a YouTube channel that gets academics together, no matter what ontology they have, if they can bring something valid with serious, critical, heavy scholarship to the biblical account, that's what I do. And then it's not only the Bible, we're expanding out and doing other things. I deal with science as well and you name it. But yeah, I'm just a, I love people. I'm a people guy, but also um, I like to explore views that are not uh, typically held by, you know, the common. So for example, Paul's ideas I came from, 
but I don't really like spend my whole time doing that. Anyway, I hope that's an introduction to me. I don't really know how to. No, that is definitely that this. is definitely an introduction. So what I wanted to get to at first, since this is about epistemology, we're trying to think, figure out how exactly do we square epistemology together with Calvinism. Well, I think I would ask, like, how do we know what we know? So uh, as far as uh, Paul, as far as your faith goes, how do you know what you know when it comes to what lies ahead, when it comes to your uh, your theory of mind? I, I, I don't know that I ever thought a lot about my theory of mind. We are, most of our beliefs come unbidden. Um, I think it's absolutely vital that our beliefs are not in some ways subject to our volitions because then we would choose or not choose to believe all sorts of things. If I'm walking across the street, um, the belief that a truck is barreling down the road, I hope, um, even though it's something I don't want to be true, I think it's something I need to be true. We, um, this, I, I think part of why we're talking about this is because we are sort of at the end of modernity when sort of from the enlightenment position, we believe that we were simply dumb receivers of information about the world that our senses picked up and we brought them in. I started making commentary about Jordan Peterson stuff and very quickly wound up talking to Jonathan Peugeot and John Verveke, who opened up a bunch of the cognitive science stuff. Because what happened with cognitive science and epistemology is once they began to build what they thought would be thinking machines, they began to realize that the world is far more complex than we imagined it is, that the image that we see before us, sometimes it's called the manifest image, is in many ways a product of our minds as much as our eyes and our ears and our nose. And what that means is that there's a lot of cognition that goes into apprehending the world. And that means that it's, it's nearly impossible for us to perceive without interpretation. Now, where that sort of gets into Calvinism, part of what happens in the in the Protestant Reformation is that the Luther, sort of on the back of Erasmus, wants to take a look again at a lot of the, for Luther, what he thought were accretions, some critical accretions that had developed in the church. How can we get beyond those accretions? Part of what's happening towards the end of the Renaissance is more and more texts are coming online. Columbus, of course, 1492, Europeans, um, you know, Renaissance Europe, Italy, Spain, discovered the Americas, whole new world opening up, and also the printing press coming along. So suddenly Erasmus takes a copy of the Vulgate, takes a Greek text, puts them next to each other, and adds comments in the margin. And now suddenly that which had simply been received word of God is something that now is subject to scrutiny in terms of humans interpretation of that. And so the great work of the Vulgate that Jerome had done now suddenly is up for grabs. Wow. And now, especially with the printing press, that gets the ball rolling. Well, it's been rolling for 500 years and it's still rolling. And we're trying to have some kind of assessment. I noticed in one of the, the promo tweet that you put out, a question of certainty. And, you know, at this point, 
we're really wondering what on earth we even mean by that word. Well, Derek, what do you mean by the word certainty? Uh, obviously, if you get down to it, like Paul said, I don't know if there is such a thing. Absolutely. Um, I came from, you know, evangelical circles. And when I went to uh, the college I went to for uh, Carolina Bible College was renamed to Carolina College of Biblical Studies. They said, do you think that there is an absolute like meaning, like there's an official actual meaning to these texts? And we're talking about the Bible. Um, and I thought, yes, absolutely. There's there's one meaning and this is the truth. And then you get lost when you get an interpretation of like, uh, well, that's a shadow of the real meaning. And like you get into all sorts of stuff. But as far as certainty in real life, all I can do when we get into epistemology is base it off of knowledge from our perception, right? Our reality that we live in and being able to test that. We've already have cognitive functions, like Paul said, that do uh, automatically address. We draw conclusions without even realizing it with our brains. It's, it's just what happens all the time. And that methodology, I never really practiced like stopping and thinking about how our brains function and why we draw conclusions. I never really did that when I was a Bible believing Christian. It was more about, you know, just believe, have faith, focus on the text. I never really got into the cognitive science stuff, listening to anyone who knows about brain consciousness, all of these deep, deep ideas that Paul actually is discussing on his channel. Um, but now I start with what, what can I know from my observation, from my experience, and then work outward. Is there possibly a Spinoza deity or something out there? I can't say there isn't. Let's talk about certainty, right? I can't say there isn't something of a creator or a source or something out there. But I feel like I can be very confident based on my, my research biblically that the Yahweh figure that we're seeing in the Bible, that's most likely not a real deity that actually exists. It's like other ancient Near Eastern deities, uh, just like these other gods. These are the kind of approaches I would take. I talk to Islamic people all the time, right? People who are Muslims and they say philosophy led them to Muhammad as prophet and Allah and the Quran. And I say to myself, man, they're starting with philosophy. Like they're way out here in philosophy and they find this idea that God makes sense, this all knowing, all powerful thing. But when you get down into the nitpicky theological textual issues and you point out some of the human thumbprints that are evolved in these ideas, that's when you start to go, whoa, I think we should start there. But if you get into philosophy, you can draw conclusions. It's like word salad. You can kind of make whatever works, in my opinion. Mm. So uh, there's a lot I unloaded there, but that's so. That's how do we uh, how do we get through this uh, mess then, uh, Paul? And the ideas. Well, I I would I would rec Christine Hayes, who is mm -hmm. a professor of uh, Hebrew scriptures at Yale, has a has a good sort of modern critical series on on the Hebrew scriptures. And in this in the second episode, she begins dealing with this individual, Ezekiel Kaufman. Now I'm I'm embarrassed to put up the book here because I bought this book after watching that video and I bought it on Amazon for about five dollars. And what I didn't realize was that when I started talking about it on my channel, all of the used copies would go out there. So you can maybe get one for like $800 now. I mean, that's the way the <laughs> used book world goes. But, but Kaufman, what, one, of the, one of the critical things, I think, to where a lot of the atheist, theist debates on YouTube of sort of the past 15 years or so went wrong was the question of what, in fact, is this, is this character in the Hebrew scriptures 
that, you know, texts call the Lord. And the assumption is generally that this is another being within a metadivine realm that sort of acts and sort of like the Lord, the Hebrews had the Lord and the Greeks had Zeus and, and Persia had, um, you know, had Marduk. But one of the things that Kaufman goes into is that the strangeness of the Hebrew scriptures is what is lacking from many of these other texts that we would expect to find in the Bible in that this Hebrew God is, and this is where I get into on my channel, what I sometimes call God number one and God number two, because this God is not only agentic in the way that each of us is sort of an agent, but the God is also arenic in that when Paul in, in the book of Acts, for example, says, in him we live and move and have our being, that's a rather strange thing to say. And then also Paul in the New Testament talks about the fact that we are in Christ. Well, that's a strange thing to say. He doesn't say we are in Jesus. He says we are in Christ. And so actually, I think a lot of, I, I started getting into this when I was listening to Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris talk to each other. Because as I listened to them talk, especially in the first big talk that was on stage with Brett Weinstein, I began noticing that the God that Jordan Peterson was describing was quite different from the God that Sam Harris was complaining about. And, and what I think we've, we are coming to sort of at the end of modernity is a reassessment of what exactly, of sort of the revolutionary way in which the Hebrew scriptures began to talk about deity as compared to its neighbors. And part of, you know, the, there's a long history to why we've sort of wound up where we're at. But a lot of this question about this God in the Old Testament, who sometimes comes in and is a narrative character that Abraham can talk to, but other times you have this passive sense, which looks a little bit more like what the Greeks tried to represent as fate, which is sort of a Greek version of, of sort of getting at an arenic element to their cosmology rather than an agentic element. So divine is, providence. Exactly. There's this divine passive that you find in, in many religious texts. Well, it happened. Well, that must be the will of God. And of course, Calvinists are, are, are right in there because, you know, the old Calvinist joke, the Calvinist falls down the stairs and says, glad I got that over with because, of course, <laughs> everything's determined. Right. Um, but, and, and, you know, you even have this in, you even have this in, say, John Calvin's commentary on Genesis where Jacob is fighting with God. And Calvin says, you know, in some ways, God is fighting with his, himself because with his right hand, he's fighting Jacob, but with his left hand, he's giving Jacob the strength to fight him. Mm. And so it's it's a very interesting dynamic that I think, especially now as we are sort of getting the to the end of sort of this modernist frame of, as Jordan Peterson says at the beginning of Maps of Meaning, a world of objects in which we alone are these agents running around and acting. We're beginning to understand that a, there are a lot more agents that are at work in the world as we perceive it. And these arenic powers are also quite determinative of what the agents do. 
before we go forward with uh, Derek's uh, reply to this, I'm curious what uh, first uh, Geo and uh, Neil think about this, because we are getting into the territory now of uh, the question of free will. So, uh, Geo, being a Catholic, I'm curious what your uh, stance is on free will and the power of free will, as opposed to more of a uh, deterministic uh, point of view. Well, what do you mean, though? Like, in what way? Uh, in the way I mean, of... as opposed to Calvinism? Yes, yes. Um, I'm not well-versed in Calvinist theology apart from uh, what's the term they call absolute depravity or so forth. Um, I, I, I don't understand how any form of Christianity can't posit free will. I mean, that's just kind of the linchpin of any sort of moral action. So, yeah. Hmm. Well, we could definitely get into that. And uh, Neil, uh, any anything you want to comment before we go to Derek? All in, only thing I want to just add real quick is that it's funny that you mentioned Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson because that was sort of the type of conversation I was trying to attain right here by getting you and Derek together. Derek's sort of like a mini Sam Harris, and you're you know what I mean. So I just thought that was pretty interesting. I I, I right away I was like, wow, that's exactly what I was going for. But no, I'm nothing to add right now. All right, there we go. So, uh, Derek, uh, go for it. There was a lot said there. Um, <clears throat> so, number one, one thing that I learned as I started to get out of the methodology I used as a Christian is that the Bible is not one book, and it's not one message, right? I knew that as a Christian, but I didn't really practice this principle of the Bible is multiple sources, even sometimes single books when you get into critical scholarship is written by multiple authors, depending on how critical you get. If you're fundamentalist evangelical strictly, you're not going to admit that there's multiple possible layers to Isaiah. You're not going to talk about the documentary hypothesis, which means there's multiple sources who have different voices. Uh, and I talk to these academics all the time. Kip Davis, who's a Dead Sea Scroll scholar, PhD. We talked about how certain sources in the Hebrew Bible make God always appear in the heavens ethereal you can never see him he's always invisible and then in other sources god's walking with them they literally see him face to face uh he is anthropomorphic he's just a bigger version of humans and that's why i was going to mention this book right here god and anatomy professor of hebrew uh, i can't remember what college specifically francesca stavrakapulu is her name i try to that's always get that excellent. raka raka you know for the greek i like to make her voice uh, her name come out good this is really worth uh, reading recently um launched she goes in doesn't anachronistically jump into paul she doesn't get into you know late second temple judaism sticking with the ancient sources and comparing it to Canaan, canaanite literature that we find in the region in the levant you name it that the god we're seeing in the bible is evolving and we're finding this change which is very normal if if we were to expect that humans changed over time and their concepts their concepts their ideas their philosophy all of these things change then the god that we're seeing in the hebrew bible which may be this uglier version that sam harris is talking about is evolving into more what we like to see as plato the unknowable beyond comprehension all powerful omni 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 god and when paul says things like in him we move, we breathe, we have our being. He's quoting Epimenides, a Greek poet. And this Greek poet goes back, I mean, centuries. He goes so far as to say, for we too are his offspring. And this is talking about Zeus. And so so I don't I know that what what I've you know here is that we're trying to disconnect and show that Christianity is unique. And there's a lot that may be unique 
I'm not going to discredit that. But I feel like it's the us versus them, and ours is going to be the best and the greatest. If it weren't for the backs of Greek philosophy, if it weren't for the giants coming before, I don't think Paul would be making this quote. And my point is, there's a bigger picture. There's a much bigger picture. I don't know if Sam Harris talks about this kind of stuff. I don't even follow Sam Harris. So equating me as a mini Sam Harris, I don't know. He probably wouldn't know if Epimenides quoted that. But um, I, I want to bring to the table that when we're reading Paul, we're not reading ancient Hebrew literature. We're not reading Septuagint necessarily. Even Paul's quoting of Septuagint literature isn't verbatim the meaning of its original context. So while I get down into these things, I'm a super nerd on inspecting this stuff and getting into it. Does Paul misuse scripture? You name it. Um, I want to point out that human aspect. And while your ontology can differ, I know people who have different ontologies who still believe in Christianity, they will admit there's an evolution taking place. And this is very human derived, but, but that still doesn't require you to negate deity because in him we move we breathe right the idea is our breath is literally given by god according to these ancient stoics these neoplatonic people that are thinking this way so i'm i can't mm. prove to you that you're not breathing right now because a divine source is causing it i just don't draw that conclusion well uh, two quick things i wanted to address before bringing it over to paul Paul, you mentioned the right and uh, left uh, hand, and it reminds me how in uh, Judaism there is this idea of the right hand and the left hand of God. With the left hand, he punishes, and with the right hand, he rewards. And when it comes to Derek talking about evolution, I would in a way turn that on its head because you mentioned the breath. And this idea of having this more personal God and the more distant God, that's the God of basically fate, everything that goes on. I see similarities in something like Bhagavad Gita, for example, with Krishna, where on one hand, Krishna is an actual person who was present there with Arjuna during the battle, and on the other hand, he's this all-pervading force that's, that everything is inside of Krishna. So when it comes to whether it's evolution or whether it's a recognition of something that is eternal that has always existed, I lean on the latter. I think Derek may lean on the former, but I don't want to put words in his mouth. But I'm curious, Paul, of uh, what you think of what Derek said, as well as that, as well as if there is, and I think you do agree that there is this, uh, not an evolutionary perspective, but there is an actual, well, an actual God, to put it quite simply, that people are coming towards the recognition of existing. The part, part of what, in my in my journey one of the one of the people i bumped into was brett sockled who has written a book on transubstantiation and this this began to connect with a bunch of what i did in terms of the conversation within christianity to try to get an assessment of well what on earth are we talking about when we talk about god um and part of at least part of brett sockle he's a, he's a Roman Catholic scholar in Canada writing a book basically saying that um, Luther was trying, actually trying to get out Aquinas, but he had some difficulties with the philosophy. Calvin got a little bit better with his real presence that the, the questions about what do we mean when we say God are tremendously difficult. Now, of course, you have pantheists out there who will say something like God is God is in everything. Yeah. It makes sort of God synonymous with the stuff of the universe. Um, I think 
I think what you have in the Bible, and I think Christine Hayes talks about this fairly well, is is you do you definitely see an ongoing conversation. Part of what happened for a lot of reasons in in middle to late modernity, which formed a lot of certain fundamentalisms in American Christianity, was sort of a something that you described, Derek. And you will find you will find different traditions, not unlike Islam, or let's say how um, the Mormons describe the the story of the Book of Mormon, where you have much more of a dictation theory. The one of the things that people discovered as they looked at the Bible quite closely is that there are a lot of conversations going on between the writers of the Bible, and in some ways, the Bible is sort of a precursor to the internet in that not only are you having conversations with contemporaries, you're having conversations with your ancestors. Right. And, you know, if you dial down on certain, certain ideas, for example, are the sins of the father passed down to the, uh, to the children? Well, what do we mean by sin? What penalties? You can find, obviously, some of that in the Ten Commandments. You'll find some of that in the book of Ezekiel. And so the Bible is a very nuanced book in which there's a lot of conversation going back and forth. You get into the New Testament, one of the things that Paul is trying to do, let's say in Athens, where he's quoting these Greek poets, you know, we call them poets, or they call them poets, we tend to call them philosophers, but similar thing, is, okay, where, how can Hebrews and Jews and this large cosmopolitan world of Eastern Roman antiquity talk with each other? Where can we find connection points? And certainly Paul was well-versed with Stoicism and with a variety of those other things. And so you find him trying to engage and translate without without losing what the Jews bring to this. And again, part of the big division that we see in there, as I think Christine Hayes nicely puts out, um, talking about Ezekiel Kaufman, is in what way is God just another agent? And in what way is God also the ground of all being? And, And you will find those kinds of tensions and conversations throughout many religious traditions, because those are some of the limited options on the table. Everyone assumed that the world is full of, see, it's difficult to translate this into modernity. If we say influences, we sort of split the difference between idea and spirit. And something comes over me when I act. I mean, we have Cupid. And, and so the world is full of spirits. And so we are, in a sense, half spirit, half matter, how do we then react in this world? And, and so all of these questions of agency, of what kind of arena we're living in, how can we have these, these, different, these different people come together and sort of talk to one another? And, and you, you'll find that very much in the Bible, in various books of the Bible. And it's really difficult to sort of sort it out, especially when you have a religious tradition that says 
This book is authoritative for us. Okay. How do we figure out how that authority is mediated, represented, and then instantiated in a community? Well, Derek, what do you think? There's a lot. Um, I would I would not put a um, I wouldn't put too much of a gap between Paul's Judaism and the the Stoics, the Greeks, the Neoplatonics. Like I think that by this time, a lot of the academics I talk to are not having this like it's either Jew or pagan, and there's this divide. No, Hellenism had deeply seeded into Judea, Judaic thought. So Just when Paul. Well, yeah, Philo is a perfect example, and even he had component like people that were his uh, competition who thought he went. They went way too far. Like the law, no, 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 no. It doesn't mean don't eat pig. Uh, it means just don't act like a pig, which we see uh, remnants of this in like one Enoch and such, uh, where there's this element of like the law really is a spiritual thing. Not you don't have to follow the actual law itself. It just for me and all of this, I don't even know where to begin. There was so much that was you know we we've been talking about. Uh, I bring it back to the kind of God. I love Christine Hayes, by the way. I'm glad you brought her up. I really enjoy her. Uh, how divine is divine law? And her pointing out exactly this problem that the rabbis were having, even amongst themselves. This conversation went down. Even in Islam, the Muslims were arguing, God has a body. And others were saying, no, 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 no. Complete spirit. We're talking 700 years after Paul. There's this issue of... The, like what kind of God are we dealing with? And I mentioned this because other academics also dabble with this and explain the God that we're reading in the Hebrew Bible, especially in certain sources, is physical. Now that would go against typically what you would hear in Christian circles. And I just read you the back of this. Good Lord, someone wrote, someone wrote this about the book. Stavrakapulu touches that sweet spot that is scholarly, funny, visceral, and heavenly, a revelation in both Judaism and Christianity, God is conceived as non-physical. In God and anatomy, Francesca Stavrakopoulou shows that this was not yet so in the Bible, where God appears in a much more corporeal form. This provocative work will surprise and may shock, but it brings to light aspects of the biblical account of God that modern readers seldom appreciate. And of course, every chapter is named after a body part of God. And you know, the way she does connect these dots, because we know El Elyon, the God Most High, which I think get, gets conflated. El Shaddai gets conflated with Yahweh and the names of God and such. There's an evolution taking place. I, I think that when I use the term evolution, I just mean a change. We don't have to go into macro, micro. This is not even biology that we're discussing. This is an example that I would suggest when we look at history, when we look at these people's ideas as they change, you would expect Paul to start having something where God is compared to the the great uh, platonic, all-knowing, powerful being. And um, I want to couple this into Calvinism for a moment just to point out. I had problems as a Calvinist. Uh, one of those problems was, you know, to me, it's cognitive dissonance that's set in for me to explain these problems. And maybe there's easy ways to explain it. It makes sense to someone who's in the systematic approach of Calvinism, but God asking where Adam is, where are you? Simple, basic little things. I knew how to answer them as a Calvinist. I could just say, come on, guys. God is so beyond us. He speaks in anthropomorphic language so that you, the reader, or you, the person who's watching this, reading this, will at least understand him because he is so beyond our comprehension. 
I think that's also anachronistic because comparing it to other ancient Near Eastern literature, their gods didn't really know everything. It's only later that we find this idea start to really come in. And if you hold to a systematic theological view of Calvinism, you're anachronistically going to put it back onto these ideas about God. And I see why, because you want to hold to something that's consistent. But there's a lot of problems. Like, why did he put him in the garden, right? Superlapsarianism or infralapsarianism. For those who don't know, I know Paul knows all about this. So we're probably speaking gibberish here, but <laughs> what yes, position do you hold to, Paul? What let's break, break it down. What is this superlapsarianism? This is a debate that happened in certain Calvinist circles in the middle of the 20th century and before about what was in the mind of God um, before the foundations of the war, before the foundations of the earth. And um, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Which one do you hold to? Um, the Christian Reformed Church is generally infra. Um, if the, I can press, I, can I press you on it? Can I ask you why? Why, why you wouldn't take the uh, superlapsarianism? And, and for those who, can I get bold and blunt for the audience real quick, just to point out like the, the scary part about it is, is in my opinion, it's an argument to try and protect God from evil. Because you go to James and it says that God does not create evil, this idea in the book of James. But Isaiah 45 or 54, I get that dyslexia from time to time. I create light. I create calamity, or if you will, evil. I create good. I create bad. I, the Lord, create all these things. I do all these things. And uh, I, I used to just tiptoe there, and then I went super. I just said, look, I can't make sense of why God would know, put Adam and Eve in a garden, literally knowing the serpent's going to make them fall, and all of this chaos, and yet still create a hell where he's going to, most of his creation is going to burn. He's making them, right? I, I, I accepted that without thinking negatively about this. I, was a, I had to swallow a massive pill as a Christian to accept I was a tulip follower, five-pointer, I believed in the limited atonement that he only died and his 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 blood was only for select elect people. Um, and I did that from Genesis. I just said this was all part of the plan, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and I didn't know where you stood on all that. Well, what what about that turns you off? Um, I think over time, as I started to research, well, first things first, I didn't leave Calvinism. I got excommunicated because I had an eschatological view that is contrary explain to explain that word for people. So I believed I wanted to study the end times. I wanted to know what the second coming of Jesus apocalyptic, if you will, the idea of the end that is supposed to culminate all things where the resurrection of the saints would happen and the final judgment, all of these things. I was what they call the pre-mill dispensationalist when I became reformed at first, I was looking for a reformed Baptist church but I ended up in a Presbyterian because it's the only thing nearby. Did you grow up in a, a pre-mill dispensational household? I, you could say that mom was Pentecostal. Dad was Roman Catholic, which meant he didn't really practice religion. Right. <laughs> and so I ended up later on taking, well, well let, let, let's show sure some respect for Gio though. Gio, you're Roman Catholic and you're a big believer and practicer. So, and at least in my experience, a lot of those old school Italians, they were very dedicated to the faith. Mm hmm. Um, but what, what, in what regard do you mean that um, if God has a physical presence? Because from what I, my understanding of Catholicism is that he can take image and form, but in terms of physicality of man, I mean, apart from Christ, then there's a debate around that. For example, Titian, uh, the Syrian says, our God has no introduction in time. 
He alone is without beginning, and he himself the beginning of all things. God is a spirit, not attendant upon matter. I think that the the case, so the central question of the talk we're having is the nature of truth. But what truth do we refer to? Do we mean finding a linchpin of truth within time or outside of time? Or do you mean the different levels of truth? Because if we want to talk about, and you know, having watched um, a bit of uh, Mr. Vanderclay's videos, I think that you know, we're all disagreeing with a lot of things. Uh, I, be, you know, from, uh, let's call it, well, in love, you don't have to say it, but you know, love-based red pill perspective, I guess, is that um, I think that when you talk about the position that we're in as, a posi- as, as opposed to the position of church fathers, I think that in a way we talk about the nature of, um, I don't know, post-truth of the collapse of modernity and so forth. But I think that these issues were always there from the beginning. But my contention is that if you were to pull our Lord away from that position of being the absolute ontological ground of being itself, then you get into a bunch of errors and a bunch of positions that have led to, I guess, for lack of a better term, the ills of modernity. But I also think that the other option that people propose is sort of a, I guess you could say a Simone Weil, you know, God participates in the ontology of being so forth. God is co-creative with creation. I think that, I mean, while heretical is quite interesting philosophically, but like I said, heretical. But, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of problems with a lot of people's um, quasi-new-agey approaches to Christianity. Um, and I don't I don't think that a lot of these problems are solved, but it's quite interesting to mm. see if we can get into what exactly we mean. Do we mean the truth of the world, or do we mean the truth of being itself? Because if we want to talk about the truth of the world, I mean, we talk about post-truth and simulation and Baudrillard. I mean, a lot of these things existed way, mm. way earlier. But what's the difference it, between that and the truth of being? Well, because I think that there are things that prevent us access from the truth of being. There are certainly things, I mean, in every culture, there's that. I mean, there's, you know, Kali Yuga and so forth. But I think that nowadays we have um, sort of a number of closed systems that have come about in modernity that sort of um, prevent us from gaining a sort of access to a larger ontological truth because we've created essentially a layer of simulation over those truths. Mm. Um, well, and, well, that would be an interesting yeah. question for Paul. Paul, do you agree with Gio? Multiple that there's simulations. Been, yeah. That there's multiple. been this uh, layer added that makes it a lot harder to uh, get to the truth. Uh, unlike in the past, or would you say it's pretty much the same as it was uh, as ever? Depends on which truth you're trying to get at. If you're trying to get at the composition of water as as hydrogen and oxygen, we're a little bit better at it. I think we've lost some understanding of how how very large things move through a culture and having a language that can represent it more accurately. So a, a lot depends on what truth you're talking about. What I often do, and, and we, we, we sort of started this between Derek and myself, what I often do, especially in conversations, is it's it's difficult to it's difficult to make too much headway in the abstract. And it's always easier to get a sense 
either from someone's life, from someone's history, from something that happened in someone's life to, to, to get something usually, especially if there's an audience that people can sort of identify with that. And then from there you can begin to, I think, get a handle on some of this truth that we want, because, Mm -hmm. you know, earlier on when when I, we talked about this question of epistemology and knowing we, we know, we want to know in order to pursue something good, something good for ourselves, something good for others. And knowing, knowing is always, I think, in service of love. And, and not only do we want to know to love, in another way, we have to love to know. And which is why, again, often in conversations, you can begin to, instead of debating stuff sort of up there in the abstract, once we begin to ask questions and talk with one another and begin to sort of get a sense of what has been on the ground in someone's life, that requires love because it means that I pause, listen, care, and then from that basis, then begin to know and begin to hear and then hopefully begin to meet. And it's usually in that meeting that we begin to have a an experience of truth and hopefully productive truth in further pursuit of love. Well, this is something that I want to square away with uh, something like the question of free will that uh, Gio was bringing up uh, recently. And uh, Derek, where do you uh, wh- where do you see free will? Like, how would you even define what free will is? Because you you are well, you're, you're atheist. You don't believe that there is this higher power out there. What would be your definition of free will? And then I'm curious, Paul, as far as uh, I I don't know if saying that you are deterministic, if that's fair or not. I'm not sure what because I know that you presented that as being like, oh, everybody thinks that you know, like we're all about just like fatalists. But uh, it is ironic, by the way, that I think some of the most brilliant and entrepreneurial people of all time came from this calvinist protestant school where you think oh they would just be slacking off all the time thinking well i i'm not in charge of whatever happens it's all god so what do i care it's very and i'm curious why that why you think that is why you think we have like this protestant work ethic and all that stuff but anyway as far as going back to derek what would you say is uh, your definition of free will what do you see as free will um, as far as when it comes to the like a philosophical question of free will and is it all determinism, I think Sam Harris holds to some scientific model that it is determinism. Uh, I think, Paul, you've mentioned that in one of your episodes. I had to try and at least get aware of something of you before we had the conversation. Um, but I had a conversation with a gentleman who's a brain scientist, and he talked about how before we make decisions, even like I don't know how many microseconds before we actually do those things – the decision's already there. Uh, you're already making these decisions. And I asked him, so is it free will or is there, is this kind of like, you know, complete uh, determinism? What's, what's the deal? And he's up in the air. Uh, we're not certain, like no reason to be absolutely certain on this question. So when you ask free will, uh, what kind of question are we getting into? Because as far as, for example, the theological question of free will, this is getting into a model of can someone choose life? if they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Um, but as far as coming outside of the faith, the world we live in, I don't know that answer. 
and I don't pretend to know, oh, everything's all dancing to the fiddle of the, uh, the, the, what is it? The fiddler. Uh, I think it's, uh, who is it? Einstein said something like everything dances to the tune of the fiddler. I, I honestly don't know this question. I mean, it seemed like a, a Spinoza statement in a way, but, um, I honestly don't have a absolute position mm. where I would hold to either or. Well, what I would want to try to figure out with uh, Paul is when it comes to how you see free will, is it a matter of uh, is it a matter of just complete faith in everything? You know, like you said before, God is large and in charge, so there's no point in uh, worrying about you know like what decision you're going to make. Would you say it exclusively comes from faith, or is there something that we can get to here philosophically or abstractly, even though I agree with you that these questions are best found out through more of a personal process of getting to know one another? But just to, you know, just kind of scratching that itch, I'm very curious about uh, what you think there. I, free will isn't my favorite phrasing. I think real agency is a better way to talk about it. We, I mean, it's funny because, again, Calvinism has always had a reputation for for determinism and Calvinism is actually a very broad category, which is underneath most of sort of the non-Lutheran, non-Anabaptist um, Protestantism. Arminianism was the split off off of Calvinism and eventually dispensationalism came quite a bit later. But I, I've never I've never really known a Calvinist who didn't believe that they weren't a responsible agent in the world. And, and that's where, e even though I, I can understand why, you know, the Canons of Dort, which is written about a century after the beginnings of Calvinism, one of the, one of the foremost, uh, one of the foremost experts on Calvinism, a guy named Richard Mueller, who taught at my alma mater, Calvin Seminary in the PhD program, has a great lecture out there. You can, you can just Google Richard Mueller was Calvin a Calvinist gets into some of the differences between the the 16th and 17th century Calvinists. A much more modern philosopher, Wilfred Sellers, I think is is more helpful in trying to figure out what someone like Sam Harris is talking about. Because on one hand, Sam Harris sort of covers one eye and tries to see the world through the scientific um, image, in which there are no agents because science basically took agents out in order to practice science you know earlier philosophical models had well ball spheres are traveling towards earth because of love essentially via aristotle and so what science basically says is well let's imagine there are no agents and therefore there's no agency and we have a strictly mechanistic universe and Wilfred Sellers basically says, but then you look at the manifest image, the difference between the scientific image and the manifest image is normativity, is an ought. Science only talks about what is. The manifest image, we all talk about what's ought. It's the only thing we care about. And so I think God clearly gives us agency and holds us responsible for what we do with our agency as we all do with each other. I don't think there's any other way that human beings know how to live. But then what I understand specifically regarding Calvinism, and this is why it's really good that you're here to help me uh, clear this up, from what I understand that there is supposed to be an elect and only a specific amount of people who are the elect are going to go to heaven. 
And this is what I was never able to figure out because it almost seems like if that's already been predetermined, then how can people, well, how, how can it be said that anybody would be their own agent there if that's already determined to take place? So when my, um, oh shoot, what was the name of that video game that my kids would play? Um, the one Sonic where the, the hedgehog. These, the, these uh, guys are jumping around looking for treasures and it's just all hopping between things. Um, went through a bunch of, went through a bunch. Of, anyway, I was watching my kids play a video game once and, and it looked in that video game like these, in, the character in this video game could go anywhere. Uncharted, that's the name of it. Uh, the character oh, yeah. in the video game could go anywhere. So I'm watching my kid because I'm I'm too old to know how to use controllers. I'm watching my kids go around this video game, and I very quickly realized that, well, sort of theoretically they could go anywhere, but not really. They, there's always these closed off places that they can't go, and I think this is sort of a view of the way we are in the world. Most of us, when if we were to sit down and, and catalog the most important thoughts that we have, they wouldn't look a lot different from each other. Well, why is that? Well, we're born roughly in the same century, within the same culture, and it's sort of like that little Uncharted character. We sort of run around and we all sort of run and, and, and hit all of the same different little spots. And, and this gives us a sense of just what we can understand about history and agency as we are going now. And I, for a while, worked in the Dominican Republic, mostly with Haitians. And you know what? The vast majority of those Haitians had very few options in life. They just did. They were, they were born on an island in extreme poverty. Um, they're probably not going to get a visa to another land. Um, most of them are going to live and die on that island, and they're probably not going to live to the extent that we do in terms of the options that we have. Okay, how do we account for those limitations? Who chose those limitations? We all live in this world with very limited options, and where does that come from? And then suddenly people are like, well, I think... You know, we have this we have this image of God sitting on a throne and just picking and choosing. That's not really a bad image when we ask a question, could Galileo travel from Italy to New York City? No. Where's Galileo's agency? Well, it's limited by who Galileo is and where he lands in history. And we don't have we don't take serious offense at that. But then suddenly we take serious offense mm. at other things. Well, the only thing that I would throw in there, and again, a lot of the people in the chat can say, oh, this is Lev being New Age or Lev again, but fine, I don't care. What I would throw in there is the idea that maybe there is a karmic factor at work here. There is a factor of if you make certain decisions throughout your life, assuming, and again, I know this is not a Christian perspective, although funny enough, it is a Jewish perspective in terms of their idea of Gilgul, which is their reincarnation. The idea that anything that you do in this life matters both for positive and negative uh, you know, outcomes, in which case the kind of things that you do, including, I guess, you know, how you help people, uh, the kind of thoughts that you have, I think all of that ends up compounding into some kind of a result, which would 
inform the amount of freedom that you have in, let's say, the next life, for example, or even in this life, the kind of decisions that you have to uh, deal with. And if I take that approach, then it does make more sense for me why certain people end up living in certain lives, let's say, even if it could be seen as you know, horrible, like, for example, somebody being born with some kind of, a, you know, a horrible condition. And these are, you know, very scary things to even think about. But the only way, at least right now, for me, that a lot of these things would make sense it would be this idea that there is a certain balance to everything and the kind of things that you do in life end up coming back at you for both good and bad. But I don't know. I know that's not a Christian view, but that's the one that seems to make the most sense for me right now. Well, I, you know, to get back to what Derek was saying about, I'm pointing down because he's down in terms of my screens. I don't know if he's down in everybody's screens. <laughs> I'm in hell, Paul. Just so <laughs> in terms, I mean, you can, this idea, what we roughly call karma, you can sort of read in the book of Job. And what Derek said about these conversations, I mean, basically the book of Job begins with sort of a, a karmic world. And Job's friends look at Job and, hey, Job, you know, you're, crops you're white you know your kids were wiped out your um animals were wiped out you obviously must have done something wrong karma's a bitch that's basically what job's yeah. friends say to karma and the whole book of job is about this question is really the universe closed like that and and really then from job i think in a lot of ways jesus very much builds on job because the question in christianity is and continues to be for many other faiths would God allow his servant to lose on a Roman cross? So those conversations are very much in the Bible. And, and I think with a lot of these systems, Christians still believe in reaping and sowing. What you sow, you will reap. But Christians also believe that that's not the entire picture of the way that we or the world works. Mm. Well, Gio, what do you think? Um, about Job or about, uh, I think the problem is what does freedom serve is freedom in an end in itself, but also what is the condition of freedom? Because if truth is one of them, I mean, it's very interesting, uh, what Paul brought up about, um, one's agency or one's direct ability to enact certain outcomes in the world. I think that for one, uh, there's a relation between the discourses of truth and power. If you're saying the truth is a condition from which we gain freedom because we can know, then uh, when pe people get really freaked out when, you know, the typical, like, I guess you would say post-structuralist, uh, well, you know, power, is, power produces truth. It's more of that power is a productive force. Power is a desiring machine. And if truly, if the truth of things are determined by power, then I think um, there is a free play between the resistances to that regime of truth, your ability to influence it, but the conditions by which truth is had, therefore the conditions by which you can gain freedom is somewhat determined by those apparatuses of truth. So therefore, it's not that you are totally powerless. This is what people get wrong about people like Michel Foucault, for instance. It's not that you're totally powerless in the system. There's always resistances. There's always um, an ability with which you are participatory within that apparatus of power, ergo truth, ergo freedom. But that can never evaporate. There's always going to be a regime of truth. And therefore, there's always going to be conditions upon which you can 
enact freedom. But this is corporeal freedom. If you want to talk about divine freedom, about the freedom of the human soul, that's obviously different. But I think that the whole, like, and, you know, Paul mentioned Sam Harris, which I think is an abysmal book in many ways, his free will book. Like, even even the discourse around science and around the preconditions which science binds our view of the world and our free play in it and you have no free will because blah, blah, blah. I mean, science, again, is a discourse of power as, as well. So I think that, but power is, again, productive force. So I think that this thinking around free will and this, like, you know, is there absolute determinism or is there absolute free will? I think it totally misses the point when it comes to not just the material structures that we live in every day, but also a greater source of freedom, but also the purpose of freedom. Because if you mean by freedom, I can do like a totally like libertarian in the philosophic sense of like, I can do whatever I want. I mean, that's kind of missing the point. No, but the question is when you do whatever you want, does that end up making you stuck in a particular cycle where now you're just, but again, that's what I mean. Like, because freedom I think is deeply conditional. It's, it's deeply, um, it's not an a priori goal within itself. It is merely a means to something. But the problem is that there's so many things nowadays that have predicated a worth upon freedom and free will as being absolute in the sense of a divine absolute. Hmm. Uh, like free will is definitely a condition for moral action. It's definitely what I believe a guarantor from our Lord. But that being said, it's what you do with it. It's always something conditional. It's not something that is within itself an end goal because then that's just affirming a negative in my opinion. Mm. Like that's, you know what I mean? Well, Derek and then Paul, Derek, what do you think is the meaning of freedom? Why, why are we free? What is the point of having all this freedom? What, what is all this for at the end of the day, Derek? That's, that's what I want to know. What, what do you mean by freedom? What do you mean by free? I mean, are we talking philosophy? Or are we, what are we in particular talking about? Because there was a lot I think that's coming from, you know, for example, Gia that was just describing some stuff. And to be honest with you, I don't get caught up in the the divine freedom and the spiritual side of things. I speak of those things in theological terms. Um, so if we were talking about freedom, we we're talking about God's free will, we we're talking about human free will. In what framework are we talking about in terms of freedom? I like to think of freedom personally as freedom from, like I said before, being stuck in a particular cycle. By which I mean, if you get addicted to something, then Mm -hmm. you're constantly going to be going through the motions of that. But when you're free from that, when you're free from, let's say, I know, having to eat, you know, bad food, or you're free from having to indulge in, you know, sexual activity all the time, that kind of freedom, I think gets you closer to the state of, and again, this is, I think, in a lot of Eastern texts as well, not having to subsist on a lot of these creature comforts, both for good and for ill. Mm -hmm. So things just start to affect you less. And I don't think it means that you become some cold-hearted, you know, uh, pillar of stone, but I think it does free you to perceive something, something greater. And that's where language, I think, falls, because at least as far as my own experiences, I know Lev's Law, uh, as far as my own experiences go, I see that there are certain things beyond whatever it is that we're used to. And I'm only at the, you know, tip of whatever it is it may be. Like, I, I can't even, I don't even want to talk about it that much because 
I still am not at the level of even being able to quantify exactly what it is, but there is still this feeling, this appreciation for there being something higher than just the material back and forth reality that people mm -hmm. are used to. And I don't know, Paul, if you would agree with me here, that that is something that people who go into contemplation, meditation, prayer, that they end up having the same kind of feeling that they can't really put into words, and the less that they're dependent on a lot of these, you know, outside uh, creature wants and desires, the closer they end up getting to that point. Unless it's just delirium from not eating a lot. I don't know. I just want to make a comment real quick and let Paul go. Um, as far as this conversation goes, when it comes to freedom, like I feel like we're playing bowling and there's really no guards and we can talk about anything we want. When we say these words, when you brought it down to like addiction and things that we need, I have experience with that. I was a heroin addict actually after 10 years of being an opiate abuser. Um, so I know what it's like to be stuck in habits that physically, psychologically, you almost have no escape. So when we talk about freedom, I did not know what freedom was during these moments, but I did know how to go get a, a meal. So there were limitations to whatever I could do. And this actually fits into the theology. If you really want to get into how Calvinists view, uh, you know, human free will and God and stuff like that, that's a whole different, it's we're, we're, there's such a world. That's why I asked you, like, what do you mean? Because, he Gio was getting into like, well, there's divine freedom and then there's this freedom. And it almost sounded like freedom meant something different in a moment at, at a moment. So I'm at the end of the day, I know what it's like to experience that. And I think we're all achieving, um, trying to achieve a, a world that's less painful where we're more satisfied in this world. And if not, some people are trying to leave this world. They yeah. see this world as just, uh, not good. Uh, so there's the only, the only problem with less painful is that I start immediately thinking about heroin, oxys, things yeah, like that. That's what I mean. That the, the, that's the thing. If there is a question of material freedom in terms of the satiation of want and ability, then that unfortunately leads to a very, I would say, hyper rationalistic or segmented or materialist view of the world that leads humanity to be viewed as nothing more than the human stomach. Then that can... what does what does just so I well I... like the, the view that it was it was my leaving addiction that's actually I, I owe a lot of it to being a skeptic now and actually being a person who doesn't know approaching the world with ambiguity and doubts actually helped me stay off drugs. No, no. I was a Christian while I was yeah. struggling with addiction for many years. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not the material. I, I want to make sure that we clarify it's not nihilism and total let me do whatever i want now because i'm an atheist and i can go live however and rape kids and do insane things Ooh. no youtube I, algorithm I, by the way but anyway you know what i mean though it's yes. like really like I, it's not that and i know that people want to straw man other sides of the position and well now it's because of that no how many preachers do you hear about with you know people in hotel rooms that are underage and finding out they're preaching a message but, but I, it I goes think... on both sides it's it's yeah obviously it's I mean, human there's... nature you know, there's right? things that I, I tr you know, I, I think that, for example, my church has really squandered a lot of things over the, since at least I would say the 19th century. But I think that the question rather is when it comes to, I'm adding to what you're saying in terms of what freedom means. If it's purely a material freedom, if it's purely the satiation of want or rather the satiation of need then that leads to a bunch of assumptions about the nature of the human, the subject and the nature of society at large. Because Can I it think be conceptual the, freedom though? I mean, like, yeah, the, yeah. I, I think the concept of God, right. While I think it's in our heads, I don't think it's literally true. 
Um, the concept is psychologically useful for many people. I even tell people that but that's I'm like, an instrumentalization of, of faith. Like that's the problem. I that's I mean that's the problem I have with people like Jordan Peterson as well. So that that to me I think that when it comes to the calamity of the 20th century and what we're experiencing, um, the fact that the, the the problem is that when you what you fill the void with is sort of a always a millenarianism that really goes to you know the horrors of the 20th century onwards. I mean this is. The very if you read the very end of uh, I know it's like she's a cringe and liberal blah 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 but uh, Hannah Arendt at the very end of Origins of Totalitarianism said that it was inevitable that uh, the gas chambers were enacted because of the conscious choice of Western civilization to forsake certain things like their faith and that's what led to really and again to quote Agamben mm. this is like he said all all you know all biopower will eventually lead to the camps because. Well and, and even Heidegger said this as well. You know, he said that, you know, the same, when I look at an industrial food processor, mm. I look at the camps, meaning that it is the logic of sort of instrumental reason going from mm. the enlightenment onwards that has decoupled us from our faith that has led to, again, the horrors of the 20th century and now the 21st century. I think that is what the argument is. It's not that faith can be corrupted or religion can be corrupted or can be a corrupting force. It is rather the magnitude by which the corruption of having this mass disenchantment in society. That is, I think, the argument that you can present. Uh, Definitely, it, I, and, and that's yeah. something that Paul uh, talks about as well in his videos. I would also right. disagree with Derek also in the scientific view to say that I n I'm not sure if you can dissect and extract thought and imagination and all that stuff out of the head. So when you say in the head, I mean, I know this is a side argument. I don't want to delve on it too much, but just my own personal view is that there may be more going on here. But, can you uh, conceive of an elephant right now in your mind? Yes. Okay. Is it real? No. Is I mean, it works. I mean, though. it may if exist you, in some parallel universe. I'm just, that's my, well, maybe we could speculate. I'm thinking of the Terry Davis elephant from Palace. <laughs> well, I'm, yeah, I'm just, we can conceive of things in our minds uh, that we've kind of created, images in our heads that don't necessarily equate yeah, but, material. You know what yeah, I mean? but who is the creator of uh, that creation? You're, you're saying it's just like the fleshy, the, yeah, the fleshy. And again, that's why I want right, to leave that right. conversation for a side. It's a very interesting one, but I want to go back to Paul <laughs> and uh, ask again about freedom and specifically with the addiction that uh, Derek was bringing up. And well, uh, yes. Well, I, I think I'd, I'd like to pivot the word use of the word freedom which is especially in our culture sort of something that has to do with without constraint and talk about agency and so i i pastor on a church in a corner in a um place in town where there are a lot of homeless people and right now well, he might have gotten up billy might have gotten up but there's a meth addict that sleeps right over there and this morning there was a, a guy who you know, rolled over and his crack pipe fell out of his sleeping bag right in front of my door to get into the office this morning. And so I, I do a lot. I spend a lot of time with people who are struggling with agency, let's say, because we might say, well, do they have the freedom to to get off of meth or get off of crack? And, you know, one of the things I really enjoyed, John Verveke did a series awakening from the meaning crisis that it's a long series, but I, th I thought it was very worthwhile. He he talked about the relationship between, let's say, um, addiction and agency. And one of the ways to understand addiction is sort of a reciprocal narrowing. It, it's not that the it's not that the addict it's depending on the level of functionality of the addict. The addict can't keep a job 
a lot of addicts keep jobs, uh, church or not church jobs. Um, it's but there, but in time, their world just narrows down, and as that addiction gets a hold of someone, pretty soon they're not able to keep up the job, they're not able to keep up the marriage, they're not able to take care of the kids, and you have this reciprocal narrowing of agency. And agency is really this capacity for us to to engage with the world productively. And and I would say to go back to the theological conversation that we were having, the, the reason God gives us agency is for love, because the, the addict loses the capacity to, to love a partner, to love a child, to love a community. And eventually that reciprocal narrowing, the addict can't even maintain their own life. They can't even love themselves sufficiently to keep body and soul together. And so then you have the question, if, if there is this narrowing in the world, might there also be this broadening? And, and that is, in fact, what I think agency is for. Agency is for, you know, Christ sums up the law and the prophets and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Reciprocal broadening, and I think this is the purpose of the Christian life, is to enable people to, in fact, love larger, love broader, but also because it's broadened, it's also specific. Because in order to love the world, well, the world is too big, you have to begin by loving others and maybe structures and, and things all the way up. So freedom sort of puts us in a little box, but agency, I think, affords us the vision that, of what agency is for in Christianity, which I think is love. Mm. That is very well said, but it also reminds me of the video, which I I don't think I saw the full thing yet when you were talking about how you have all these uh, kids in Africa who are starving, and if you put one child in the commercial, people would identify with that child. When you put, you know, like hundreds of kids, it's not the same thing. And I don't know if it was Sam Harris or whoever was saying that, well, this is some evolution insufficiency on the part of human beings that they cannot emphasize with like the larger number but i'm curious what exact what you think is going on here as far as this quality of not really being able to you know it was even the stalin quote i think you know one death is a tragedy uh million is a statistic yeah. yeah i i think i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we are um we are we are we we live in a straight we live in a very strange world. I mean, there's five of us talking on screens, and none of us have ever met in person before. Th this is a very <laughs> recent development for human beings, and we not only have we we've certainly not caught up to these these realities, which means that there's going to be all sorts of unintended consequences in realities like this. We are, you know, we I think we. I think we are made to see a child in need and help that child. And in terms of our level of agency, that is our capacity that we have to extend love, usually we can help one child. Once we sort of get above this Dunbar number, we start to lose. Now, we also have these structures that we create. And so hopefully with our agency, we can begin to try to work in these structures, but those structures are often greater than we are. But I think the problem is that uh, when you predicate something like free action or agency upon uh, sort of worth, I mean, that gets into a lot of problematic areas. I think that, you know what I mean? Like that you can just go down the line and see where that could potentially jam up 
But then at the same time, I mean, the sort of like global humanist project that's being called into question, I think as well as equally uh, flawed for lack of a better term. So I think that where can we truly put, oh, I mean, so many ways, Neil, we talk about this all the time. Well, I mean, sort of humanist universal ethics is entirely baseless in my opinion but that being said that's not to say that any anything I else mean, is you know. i hate to challenge you that I, I hate to you know get too combative here but when i hear when i hear like things people say like you know the reason why the gas chambers opened up in the 20th century is because we left faith when you have hitler himself saying i'm doing this because i'm following the will of divine providence and going against the jew I mean that sounds pretty uh, religiously pr- uh, charged to me. Yeah, but the lo- but it's sort of like the logic of the sort of industrialized humanity. That is what Arendt was which getting leads at. to science, not any particular pagan cult that Hitler was a part of. Which leads to I constitutional mean, republics, um, you know, sort of philosophy, uh, science, mm-hmm. medicine. But then you, well, here, but I'll say this. Is a, yeah, but those I'll, in those point, things as well. They, well, it could, it could be a double-edged sword atrocities too. Just well, yeah, because well, if you, I mean, you go back before the 20th century, all the centuries before that, going back into pre-Christianity. I mean, there's four crusades between Muslims and, and Christians. I mean, we're talking defensive we're talking, wars. Well, defensive I, I, wa- I want to make sure that we don't stray too much <laughs> into the. Uh, well, of the no, no, I think I think the problem the problem is that you're reifying the sort of so-called gifts that liberalism has provided us. When in, in actual fact, I mean, this it's even in terms of material sort of benefit, maybe there's an argument, but there, there's something. There's a reason why people are deeply disaffected and like profoundly alienated from everything nowadays. And the I mean, these arguments. I think the I think the problem is that when it comes to the so-called benefits of the sort of modern liberal regime, a lot of the contradictions that are present in it are masked by technological progress. I think you're, the problem is that you're conflating techniques and the progress of techniques with the actual validity of the regime itself. When it's sort of having to ignore, you know, the sort of externalities and the states of exception that are propped up by we just went off topic big time. Well, yeah, I know. Yes. No, to bring like, it back. There's a disagreement here for sure. But yes. Oh, yeah. No, but I'm just... Let me bring it back real quick because this is what this is the technology thing, like Paul was talking about. This is all relatively yeah. new. We don't even know how to handle all this stuff yet. And it can be, it can be like a shock factor. And that's why I think. Well, exactly. Yes. And that's, but that's yeah. why I think, that's why I think philosophy comes into play, not just dogmatism, but actually questioning things challenging things having two opposing ideas challenge each other and duke it out sort of like in a talmud way mm. with mishnah and the sort of like a you know pl- platonic dialogue between socrates and but that's but that may be good for people who are interested in that but my question going back to the original subject relates to martin luther actually i don't know if this is necessarily the case so paul i'm curious what you think was it necessarily the case that uh, Martin Luther, even though he believed in predestination, he did not really want to dwell on predestination for the sake of the people not being confused and falling into this, you know, uh, thought that people have where, you know, you have free will, we don't have free will, so you do whatever you want, you know, that confusion. Was there any element there of him being afraid that people were going to go down that path? And that's why he you know, didn't dwell on it so much, even though he believed it. Luther and Calvin both get their ideas of divine election through Catholicism all the way back to Augustine. And then, of course, 
that inter trying to interpret the Apostle Paul. So um, Calvin, I, I think part of why the conversation went the way it did, especially in the 17th century with Calvinism, was because of the continued emergence of deistic assumptions about the universe, which sort of created God as an agent apart from an arena. And so when I when I made comments about the fact that we are all used to dealing with arenic agency in our world that limits our choices, um, that's not in any way um, at intention with a God who picks and chooses. Because, you know, the genetic makeup that I have inherited from my parents, of which I am, I am, I have zero agency over. The right. fact that I'm tall, the fact that I am now bald, the fact that I have this big bushy beard, I didn't choose any of these things. Many of these things are determinative about my life. Um, and so then how do we sort of figure these things out? What we, what we are given is a degree of agency within a system of constraints. And what we do with each other is basically hold each other accountable, or at least find interesting the degree to which we have agency, exercise, and use agency within this framework. And I think since Christianity, the question has been, are we using this for love? And what does love look like? Hmm. But, but just you're saying that Calvinism arose from a crisis of faith in the particular time of Luther. Is that because I'm thinking almost of like in the 19th century when Nietzsche said in the Twilight Idols about Kant, how it's sort of like this, the content, the numinal distinction further abstracted um, a presence of a metaphysics in everyday life. You're saying that in some ways Calvinism almost anticipated that response to an abstraction of faith through deism or whatnot. Is that how Calvinism arose? Or? Calvin, Calvinism was a little earlier. John Calvin, of course, was a French refugee yeah. who was in Geneva. And he was a second generation reformer. So, you know, there were a lot of tensions between Anabaptists, Lutherans, mm -hmm. Winglians, and Calvin tries to sort of distill some of these things and, and also tries to kind of put it back in dialogue in some ways with, um, with the history of the church. And, you know, Calvin in many ways was more of a popularizer. Calvin mm -hmm. is on the map because he starts writing the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, well, and, he, he also went to bars, I think, in Switzerland and made sure that even though he couldn't control people drinking and getting drunk, he could at least have sermons during that uh, time. Is that correct or is that just an urban legend? Well, to get into the question of <laughs> – this gets into other questions about how the vision of Christianity is realized and sort of the transition from – the earlier medieval model that obviously was instantiated mm -hmm. in Catholicism, and then this the new world that was coming through the Columbian Exchange, the discovery of the Americas, through the, the printing press, there as now, you already had the beginnings of a, a disrupted world by all sorts of technology. Urbanization was growing. Mm -hmm. um, new mm -hmm. classes were, were, were entering. It's also important to recognize that the Protestant Reformation happened mostly in Northwestern Europe, right. Spain, Italy, France. And, and so a lot of the I find a lot of the contemporary 
research historically about the reformations shows reformation shows that what we call the protestant reformation is actually one element of a whole series of other reformations that were happening within the catholic church and then obviously with the council of trent trent but even before it there's a lot of working through those issues but would you say that perhaps the manifestations of christianity um from the schisms they sort of in a way reflect the national or genetic or cultural character of these different European civilizations within themselves. Like for example, American Protestantism, I think from Calvinism, from uh, Lutheranism, so forth. I think it had a particular character that it came about in the new world. Like you were saying, I think that it manifested in such a way, the way that we're seeing, you know, the way that American Protestantism, I think has like developed over time. It's quintessentially like of the new world. Whereas like, you know, me as a Mediterranean, I think like my Catholic sensibilities are obviously different than someone of a Orthodox sensibility in, you know, Estonia or Russia or wherever. I think that certainly the peoples in some ways instantiate a particular flavor towards Christianity. I don't know if you would agree with that or not. Let me, if, let like, me just add to what, let me just add to that question because it has it relates and I, I sort of see right. what you're what, what like you're, I'm thinking Calvinism I think of like Scandies you know right. I think of northern peoples not well, us Mediterranean not us meds when I'm listening they were Lutherans when I'm listening <laughs> yeah, to all yeah. this when I'm listening to all everyone talk about how Catholicism splits and then you have the Protestant Re- uh, Reformation and then you have Luther you have Calvin and and I'm noticing that it's sort of parallel to the way the world is moving how you know, there's new technology on the rise, new empires, new science, new revolutions, industrial revolutions. And I noticed that the concept of God and love, as you mentioned, what we think of as principles, as love, as honesty, as how we treat people. I noticed those start to start to change over time. And you had, we had this idea of the logos and like we tried to we try to make this thing permeable for all things. It's it's the truth. It's it's love. It's the all. It's the perfect, reasonable concept. And we apply this into Jesus. And Jesus is, you know, he's the logos. But what, what I'm getting at is like when you see how Christianity evolves into different denominations, uh, Calvinism, etc., American baptism, doesn't that sort of um, validate the uh, what Derek was talking about with God evolving? and changing from El Elyon, this little idol that we have from the Canaanites, up until like this man in the sky and the beard, up until he's now, he's beyond space and time, but he's all love and, and he's the New Testament God. And then we even, even to go even farther, and I'll leave it at this, we, we look back, there's, I, I, I would say if you look back in the Old Testament and like numbers, there's some parts in there, I'm not going to get into details, I don't want to get too like, too like combative, but like, I think we can all agree on that those are some ancient ideals that we probably wouldn't practice today. And I want to hear. Yeah. But I mean, just because um, a particular instantiation of a people of a, of a race of an ethnos or of a culture evolves its conditions by which it practices faith and views God and creation does not necessarily, I guess it doesn't necessitate that, the personal God changes. I think that is, mm. 
you know. Well, you can a have relation a, to God. Change. You, I mean, you can have your cookies. All the time. You can have your cookies up on a high shelf, and when you're four years old, you can't reach it. Eventually, you grow uh, tall enough to reach the cookie jar. So at least this, that's how I see it. Lev, if I may respond, there's some interesting things Paul was saying, but I didn't have the free will to hold my pee, so I had to go use the restroom. Uh, <laughs> seriously, my bladder forced me to have to go. Um, Agent. That's what Socrates is, said yeah. about, you know, the human is always pulling you away from, from uh, philosophy, right? So. Mm. Right? Um, to me, like, all of these things we're talking about, love, knowledge, these things that we want to attribute to God and how we should act and things – are just one step away in terms of agency from our experience as humans. And I think we project that. That's what I was saying about the idea. Well, God is love. And if I may, Paul, can I press on one thing we were talking about earlier that we got distracted from about God? Um, one of the things I look back now, holding to a natural order of things, when we talk about this, sure, there's a four-year-old who can't reach the cookie jar, and that could be the explanation is just like we're, we're gaining knowledge and we're finally getting up to barely seeing what God really is or the ideas of God have evolved because we are constantly competing with our newer understanding, our better understanding of the world around us. So now God's got to fit that category. Well, he's outside of space and time. He doesn't live inside of space and time. Why are we making these equations? Well, we found the universe has got this beginning and there's all sorts of scientific issues that I think people want to mold their model and understanding of the deity to. And that depends on whatever tradition you come from. But the question I have, Paul, in particular, that I had a problem with now looking back is this notion that we talk about God as love. And you know, the most, I'm sure you hear this the most from free will Christians, you know, that, that just can't stand Calvinism. Jesus only died for some. God only loves. Now I'm not talking about, he pours his grace upon everyone and lets it rain on the just and the unjust common grace. I'm not talking about the typical common grace idea or getting into the two wills of God, that he has a prescriptive, then he has a secret will of God. You could tell I know my Calvinism to yeah, some you degree. Do. You okay? know all these little tricks. <laughs> right. I was in it. I was in it. Um, I actually came to the conclusion when I was a Calvinist because I had to swallow some of these heavy pills. That I was like, no, no, no. God has one will. I stopped trying to say God really wants us to follow the commandments, but why are we not following them? Not because he really wants us. What he really wants is what happens. So that's kind of in a, you could say fatalistic, but I didn't think of the world that way. Well, can and I so, ask you something? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to finish with this one. I built that up to bring a point is why would he create people for damnation, right? The Romans nine situation. So that he could show his power might um, in, in vessels of wrath prepared for destruction while he has select very few vessels, which are not the common use that are going to be prepared for glory. And does that, do you ever have a hard time, honestly, human to human, man to man? Like, do you ever sit there and think about that and go, that's hard for me to swallow too. I can't, I just don't know how to fit this in with my experience as a human, because as a parent, I wouldn't do this to any of my children, especially if they didn't choose to enter this world. I wouldn't have caused these harms to them. You see what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, you know, the verse that answers this question though, too, right? Is this the, is this in Romans nine? No, it's not in Romans nine. Ephesians? God God wills that none would be lost. So are you a universalist? So how do you how do you how do you put those two visions together? That's the question that I hear you asking. Well, yeah, I'm asking that, but if we bring in that whole God wills that none are lost, 
you're forcing the two wills to pop its head back up. But the other question I has is why not universalism then? I, I, I know there's other right. texts you can go to. Why not? Because right. there's problems with that. But, yeah. you know, do, do you have a personal problem as a Calvinist? With what this what do you idea? mean by universalism, though? Well, God wills that none are lost, then none would be lost. If he really wants no one to be lost, and he's all-powerful, literally, there's not a single thing. Oh, Every I atom is, is held by the, the hand of God. Everything it's is controlled. So <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Paul's like, quit talking can about I, Calvin. No, can no, can I ask kidding. you, Derek, though? Can I ask you? So, this may be controversial. But. Sure, ask what um, I want. I think that I notice... And this is an original point to me. This is like other people have talked about this. A lot of Orthodox people I know. But it, it, it tends to be that people, especially new atheists, they have like, I, people have called it a logical extension of Protestantism. They have a very American Calvinist Protestant understanding of Christianity. And I wonder if there is a reason why in particular American baptism or american calvinism is like almost like this atheist fedora machine that produces new atheists i wonder if you know i i think there's something there that almost requires something like i don't i can't put my finger on it but i wonder i wonder if you grew up as an orthodox person or a catholic i wonder if things would have been different i don't I think wonder. i would be as um well uh, the, the food would have been better I don't oh, think no I'd doubt. be. I don't think I'd be as devout as someone who speaks openly against it, uh, because when you get into the fundamentalist circles, they're very outspoken and and but, take like, things that's very. What I mean. Are you a positive atheist? You're more of like an agnostic atheist, or just like you're a apatheist? Like what would you? As far as the general term for theism, right? I can't be mm -hmm. a. No, I'm not a gnostic atheist. I'm not a. I'm not a certain atheist. I would be an agnostic mm -hmm. atheist mm -hmm. in that respect. Right. But as far as the biblical God. I would put my confidence to the top. I would, mm. I would say I'm a Gnostic atheist as far as the, the Yahweh of the Bible that we see. Uh, I think the philosophy has developed over time and it has gone in and it's pretty much, uh, you can't, uh, what do you call it when you're trying to disprove a position, but you can't unfalsifiable. I mean, you create an unfalsifiable deity. It's an abstract idea. Mm. <laughs> Nobody could touch it. Well, so I, I can't prove there aren't dancing elephants in the metaphysical realm right now behind me. And you can't either, but they are. And you would go, no, they're not. Or a turtle created the universe. You know, different worldviews have these particular weird, strange well, animals. I, I also but want to again, make sure we, think, don't, we don't drift too much that, into the sides here as well. I, I no, want to make again, sure we steer the ship back to Paul. Um, Paul, that tough question, man. Yeah, Where do you Paul stand? Yeah. <laughs> what I often see with people is... Well, first of all, we often wind up with two things and we sort of put them aside each other. One would be sort of a qualificationism where, okay, let's, let's imagine, let's first of all accept a frame that talks about actions in this world either qualify or disqualify people for participation in another world. And that might be a blessed world or it might be a, a, a cursed world, let's say. So there's a qualificationism. And you will certainly find that theme in scripture that um, there's there's eternal reward or eternal punishment. That's that's very clear in the Bible. So you've got that idea. So then you have the question, on what basis does one qualify? And that then throws you into other difficulties, like, well, is qualification is qualification conditioned by this other thing we were talking about in terms of agency? For example, you know. 
This person has never had the chance to hear the truth. And so maybe people have never had a chance to hear the truth are actually more blessed because then they can't reject it. And you play all these kinds of games mm-hmm. with a certain qualificationism. Yeah. Okay. Then you have then you have the other question. Okay, well, what if it isn't what if it isn't qualificationism? What if, in fact, and this is really where um, Calvinism gets its heart from, what if, in fact, I, I have no power to qualify myself? Where does the agency and the ability to qualify actually come from? And then we get into a world of all sorts of constraints and difficulties and limitations. And so on one hand, the Bible says, well, God desires that none would be saved. The Bible also says um, not everyone would wish to, you know, one of my favorite, one of the things I wrote early on, not everyone would wish to participate in the kind of thing that we see Jesus pointing to in things like the banquet of the Lamb. And I can understand that because there's a lot of people around me that don't want to hear a lot about Jesus. And when you look at the banquet of the Lamb, it seems all about Jesus. And so why would they like to be there? And so... May, may I press just as we yeah, have yeah, the, yeah. as a conversation with you, if you don't mind, yeah. gentlemen, on the side, no. just because I, this and, is and something... Eric, if you and I ever want to do this just one-on-one... Yeah, I, I would love to. Listen, out, but... <laughs> I, know I know you've got some <laughs> things you want to get into that I don't know if the rest I, of the guys really you want to get into. Listen, I got to say something. I got to say something. Paul, you're really a really nice person. I really enjoy you, your personality. You're a very kind person. And we'll disagree. Uh, we're humans. If I was pull out the knife right now if in the back. <laughs> if I was in the Reformed Church, we'd probably have disagreements. Okay, that's just how humans are. Uh, you know, one uh, Ravi Zacharias. I hate bringing that name up, but I used to listen to him a lot. As all the you know the shenanigans that happened. But he did say something that I always enjoyed, and it was if Jesus was here today and he healed two men, one with mud and one without mud, he would call this one or people humans would call this a mudite and an anti-mudite, and we divide humans or tribe tribal. That's just how we are. So when you bring up this idea that God is wishing nobody would be saved and that at the same time uh, he actually is predetermining and actually in that effect, are you saying that he causes or are you saying he lifts his grace and that's what in effect causes them to go down the path of complete, uh, if you can say, destruction? And, 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 See, if I talk to someone like Nathan Jacobs is a fun guy. He he actually got his Ph.D. at Calvin Seminary with Richard Mueller and a whole bunch of other people. After getting his Ph.D., he went to the Orthodox Church, um, which which maybe doesn't say a lot, a lot for my institutions. (laughs) But so you have this whole qualificationism, which seems well, it gets very complex. The point you just raised is something that Calvinists have been fighting over for about 350 years, okay? And I just, there's this there's this YouTube channel, Ready for Harvest. They he just released a video, four new denominations in 2022. Three of them are Reformed, and one of them is the Protestant Reformed Church that split off from the Christian Reformed Church in the middle of the 20th century. And my grandmother's sister was the wife of the son of the guy who split that church off. And so this is very much within my family. And so in the Christian Reformed Church, we sort of look at a lot of the Presbyterians and watch them fighting over these things and thinking, you know, we did that for a few centuries. And I'm not sure the fight really helped us love God and love our neighbor as ourselves so much. And so 
if you want me to cut to the short and you ask me personally, yes. how do I square this? I will tell you, I trust that God will do what's right. Can but I, I tell you where I come in on this and why I, I, I yes, personally... Uh, uh, yes, and then Gio, yes. Go, go ahead, Gio. Go ahead, Gio. No, you go ahead, then I'll... Um, I, yeah. I'm just directly responding, you know, um, to, to this because where I was to where I am now, I would let a contradiction stand and not try personally. Like for me, I see different sources. I, I also see problems that I'm looking at that I didn't look at before between Paul and James, as you well know, Martin Luther, uh, you know, he talks about this. Did James belong there? What the heck we can rationalize and try and make it fit within the canon if we'd like, or the book of revelation really wasn't canonical till a few centuries after the first century. And Irenaeus is the first guy on the scene who actually is like, Hey, this is talking about us today. And, and anyway, like my point is, is I see that problem and I don't read it as lifting his hand. I'm reading Romans nine where he hardened Pharaoh's heart. He's active, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Uh, you can read this in Exodus. I'm just reading Paul. He has this idea that God's causing people to go down certain paths so that he can have his glory and to show his mercy. And I had one Calvinist commentator that I read many years ago who said in all powerful God, this was his explanation. The way that he presents his, who he is to reflect his, uh, what we call God's characteristics was he needed people to fall the garden in order to show them mercy, some mercy and the rest to damn, to show his power. If people didn't fall and sin against him, he can't show them mercy. It's like me walking by you in the street. You don't know me from Adam. And I say, hey, Paul, I forgive you, man. And I'm going to show you mercy. And you're like, for what? You didn't do anything wrong to me. And so I can then show you mercy if you stole my wallet or you punched me or something like that. I can show you mercy if you did me wrong. But is all of that in your mind really big enough to predestine people for hell for all eternity when they didn't even choose to be in this life? We get into that agency. What if you, and I'm just speculating, is one of those people who believes that they're one of God's elect, but they're really not? You see what I'm saying? I, I'm not, I, I, I'm not, I understand. I've watched and I've listened to these debates. Of course. Back you, generations. Okay. Oh, I bet. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. Okay. How much agency do you have to affect a next life destination if, in fact, you believe in it or even not. How much do I have? How much, how much agency, agency do you have? But see, this like is when, the problem. I mean, because I, I, I say you don't have any. I, say, I don't have any. Right. Just and like so, I didn't have agency that brought me into this world. So Exactly. And so how, where am I left? I, but see, I this look is at the God fetishism say, of agency. This, this, this is, is who a, I can trust. Like, this is the problem when you fetishize agency to such extent. That can just lead to some ridiculous antinatalist argument like well i didn't choose to be born and all like i think the problem again the way you're describing calvinism again maybe it's just because of my like lifelong catholic mediterranean brain but it's like kind of uh, i just can't wrap my head around it what about augustine though geo he's a catholic i don't i don't get the the issue because no calvinist Cal uh, calvinist i mean calvinist that's calvinist. what i'm saying calvinism is a stem of augustinianism which is a it was this it was a predestinary yeah, yes view, and, no. and it comes from Paul. I mean, no, no but, but what I mean is that particular question of free will. Like, for example, when when Paul, Mr. Vanderclay brought up that that one quote about our Lord wishes you to be saved. 
what I hear is that say you, you're a parent, right? And you wish your child to be good and to grow up to live a productive life, but a parent that guides their children's hand every step of the way into adulthood is enabler is someone who is keeping their children in a gilded cage. Mm. To me, I'm saying that God wishes us to be saved, but if we do not choose that freely for ourselves, then and, and I'm, but what I mean by that, what I mean by that, cause I've been bashing free. I've been bashing freedom here. I mean that within the limited circumstances of one's existence and determined by other sources within one's life, let, let's call it, um, what did, what did, uh, Husserl call it? the life world of the subject within that particular limited life world of the subject within your own particular facticity of being right. That, cause I can't, I, I, I could wish that I was, you know, uh, a Bappian vitalist bodybuilder, but I'm not right. So I can change, right. I mean, I'm trying to, but I, th <laughs> I think that within one's life circumstances, God has to allow you the freedom to choose salvation or else he is again, sending you into what, a form of gilded cage using existence. using your bubble I'm, I'm defending paul here look at what you did to me geo okay. i'm just kidding no oh, but seriously wow. how do you know that like what gets back to epistemology how, how would you know that that's how god should operate right paul might ask me the same question i'm going to use experience as an actual parent because myself I, I think that if god truly does love us then he wouldn't treat us as a plaything in an amusement park or an NPC character in a video game. You're clay, bro. Don't you know it? I mean, honestly. Yeah, we are clay, but I mean. You're clay, molds yeah. the clay however he Don't wants. Don't you intervene with your children when they're when they're not doing the right thing and sort you of You try to intervene. Yes. Mm. Yeah, it's true. I, I mean, I, I did it. Paul, Paul, Paul's got, got a, Paul, you have but, six kids, yeah. right? So they're all high oh, now. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I don't see, I, I see a lot of these issues Focusing on, especially, I mean, it's a it's a rather peculiar thing that the same guy who would write, you know, whether or not you take Pauline authorship of Ephesians, but out of the same group that yeah. arises all these um, all these election narratives that that he's he's out planting churches for the salvation of of um, of people in Turkey and and Greece and all of these places. And so I, I think a lot of these naughty questions sort of arise out of a lot of the the philosophy that arose, especially in the pre-enlightenment and then in the enlightenment about agency. And I actually find a lot of help in a lot of Catholic sources about primary and secondary agency. Because, you know, my ability to drive a car is in some ways in me because of who my parents were, as opposed to many of the Haitians that I lived with in the Dominican Republic. Now, it doesn't mean that they have zero capacity to drive a car, but they simply never will. And so it's, it's, a, very, it's a very difficult thing to talk about and to accredit things with people, especially when we're talking about something as um, as difficult as affecting my own resurrection from the dead. Yeah, I mean, see, I think that would be where your limitation would have to come in, in my opinion. And the reason I can talk about it freely is I'm not, I'm not concerned at all anymore 
with the notion of, am I going to be resurrected from the right. dead? Am I concerned about a postmortem right. uh, eternal torment with God? And, and I think just hitting the nail on the head for our audience, my problem is this, and I'm not even talking to you, Paul. I'm just, this is my problem with Calvinism is God is a monster in this view, in my opinion. And, and I know this would be where me and him would totally disagree. Um, I want to use that language because I can't imagine me. Um, I can only raise, relate to me, and this is where you'd say your limits. I think every human on planet Earth, I have no reason to think they don't have the same agency as I do. Uh, we're all experiencing this world. They're just as important to, as, as I am. Uh, if I try to put myself in their shoes, I would like to put the same amount of mm. worthiness to other humans. Unless you think... Uh, we could start getting into um, what is it? Ancient Hindu ideas where there's elites who are in charge, or various forms of structures of society. Yeah. Where if you're poor, you're less you than. Chad, and not yes. worth it. I don't believe in that. I think that would be. I, I think I'm more of a humanitarian. I think people should be treated equally, and I think that's a good goal to aim for. But I do want to mention this is why I think if God knows, predestinarian. Whether he knows or causes, even the people who are foreknowledge, who hate Calvinism, they don't even see the problems with their own view. Like in far as the argument I'm making, that God actually plans and creates a place we call hell to kill people, to to forever, if you will, torture them in an everlasting torment. Or if you're a if you're someone who believes that it completely ceases, they it's annihilationalism. Either way, um, I just can't imagine me as a parent. I have to use my own experience having a child that I'm purposely not going to love. And I know I'm going to have them and I know every action they're going to do, et cetera. That is scary to think a God would do those things. That's where you have to have this idea. I think, well, we don't know the after we don't know how much glory and blessing some people might get for the hard lives, but for the people who are created for hell, that's, that's scary to think that, that God literally, purposed that and i'm looking back at it I, I know there are calvinists that talk that way i'm not one of them and so i don't care to defend them because mm -hmm. i don't believe that god makes people for damnation i think god makes people for glory now the mystery is why don't we all manifest that glory because, you know, you, you talk about everyone as equal agency. I don't, I don't think that's anywhere near true. Elon Musk has way more agency than the five of us. Why? Is he more deserving? Now, when you say agency, what do you mean by agency? Ah, getting, um, I'm simply saying they're humans like us. We, no, he, all, Elon Musk is course, definitely a human we all like have we agent. are. He's got right. more options. But he's got more, got more agency. But there are certain, there are certain, there's always a hierarchy to life. There's always a cast. There's always a natural lead, I think. But, Paul... But how do you? Doesn't how do you that reflect on God? Then that's what I was gonna say. If, if God's setting this up, I mean, Elon Musk doesn't seem like he's his prophet or he's wanted. To, he's he's a Christian at all. Why would he put Elon Musk in that position? What, do you, yeah. do you, well, that's right. why it only makes sense for me karmically. But that's just me. Well, no, yeah. and and I I think the I think the answer is, and and I think actually this is the answer that Calvinism gives. At least my Calvinism is we don't know. Okay, we I, don't know. Um, it and, makes again. And why it makes would I have more agency than someone, let's say, born in Mozambique, or someone that's on a ventilator in a hospital right now? I think there's cause and effect and natural reasons Absolutely. to explain why people Absolutely. end up where they are. Exactly. That, Absolutely. That, but that's where there's I would also all people agree. who are given over to a reprobate mind by the Lord. I mean, that's hmm. 
again, from a Calvinist system, it doesn't make any well, the sense most, whatsoever. The, mo- the but, most difficult question for me, though, with Christianity is, like that South Park episode, do the handicapped go to hell? You know, the idea that there are some people who are born without the faculties <laughs> to be able to do anything, uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, be like, uh, you know, be like other people as far as going to church, you know, praying in the same way that they have certain mental uh, conditions. And the question is, is that the only life that these people have? Is this the only shot that they have? So I don't know, like, uh, Paul, this has been something that's always been bothering me. Uh, wh- what would you what would you say to that? Well, there was a Dutch soccer coach who became a Hindu, and so when he told the Dutch television that um, disabled people basically got what they what they asked for because of karma, um, that's you know that's that's not a Christian perspective. Um, the the Christian the Christian take my under, my understanding is that there's a lot we do not understand in this world, and basically what we finally rest on is the goodness of god and we don't we don't understand we don't understand i mean a lot of people think oh paul you can only you can only only hold a position like this because somehow you live with you live in north america and have a wonderful life and don't have children that have problems etc etc and and actually the opposite is true because i grew up in a place and time my father my father pastored a church in patterson new jersey of of very poor people i went to the dominican republic and worked with very poor people and i now minister in a church where you know from the entire ministry i've dealt on a daily basis with homeless addicted and mentally ill people and it's it's very difficult to say well i am you know and i relatively speaking have a wonderful life i i really do I and and just by virtue, if you read, let's say, Jonathan Haidt's happiness hypothesis, just by my cortical lottery, I'm high in openness, I'm high in extroversion, I'm low in um, negative emotion. I'm a very happy guy. Why on earth am I sitting in here having fun talking to four other randos on the internet <laughs> and Billy's out there, a 74 year old meth addict who got kicked out of his house because? He couldn't, you know, he chose meth rather, he chooses meth rather than anything else in the world. What's the difference between me and him? And the answer is, well, certainly there's a lot of historical cause and effect. I was, I was brought into this world by a couple of wonderful parents who had relatively good genetics and, um, you know, had a beautiful picture of the world who served their community and loved their children well and gave me an education and yada, 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 yada. So all of this cause and effect, but how can I answer for the fact of the radical disparities of experience in this world? I can't. How on earth can you can you attach this to a loving God? Well, it's difficult. Isn't it easier to say the world is just a product of chaos? Because then we would see these radical disparities. You can, but that doesn't give anybody who's at the bottom of the heap any hope at all. Because they're just that, screwed by the numbers. That and that, to like me, a, is more difficult than this picture of Calvinism that I often have people presenting to me. That sounds like very... You just lined right up with Nietzsche on that. Nietzsche had a position... Uh, of course, I know uh, you don't draw uh, Nietzsche's uh, conclusions, but I'm saying the idea that Christianity is a slave philosophy, so to speak, for people who are the lower ranks of life, suffering from this life that we live... And there is some gratitude there, I suspect. But, you know, 
one of the things you said and caught my eye, I got to come back to it. To, you know, I love picking into the Calvinist stuff with you because this is on the thumbnail. That's Lev's fault. You can blame him afterwards. <laughs> Um, I, I'm totally fine. I'm totally blame fine. him, man. Blame him. No, uh, you said that God creates everyone for glory. That now, God I don't... created his creation for glory and we're part of it. Okay. So that's a different thing than saying everyone's created for glory. Cause I'm reading Romans nine. And I mean, I'm looking at this thinking, you know, this is the way I understand Paul. Tell me where I'm wrong in your view. I, I, I just want to point out, he talks about Jacob. I love Esau. I hated before they're even born. Hated means hate. I see no reason why people are tiptoeing around this. Uh, Psalms 5, 5, God abhors the workers of iniquity. This is, it's consistent with the idea of the God of the Hebrew Bible. There's no inconsistency here. So why then he goes, <laughs> I'm curious. That's why Marcion came on the scene. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he says, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older of the younger, just as written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? And I think this is what Paul's saying. Correct me if I'm wrong. Even Second Peter, who I think is a forger in the name of Peter, but either way, it doesn't matter. It reflects an early idea, in my opinion, of a church a figure who thinks Paul's hard to understand. Uh, he writes in a very difficult way to understand. He admits that. I'll go so far as agreeing with him. Now, here's the thing. He's saying... Like, how can he find fault for causing all of this? How can blame? How can God blame the things that he's making, that he's causing? He's electing, he's choosing, you know, the tulip theology, the whole nine. And Paul does not go, well, let me tell you why. Let me tell you how. Let me explain to you. He just simply goes and pulls out the creator card. Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Does the thing made say to its maker, why have you made me thus? This is why I think that fits Paul's theology. I look back, though. This is that thing where we come back to my experience. Am, am I more moral than God? This is a question I had to ask right, myself right, right. when and I that, compare. And that's exactly where this, the questions go. Right. Are we more moral than the picture Paul paints in Romans 9? Would we, if we had all power, actually do these things? It's questions we have to ask as fickle humans on planet Earth. But I just don't see that's I don't see that would be something I would do. I can't well, imagine. Well, Marcion, you, well, I was going to say real quick, Marcion had an answer for this where he separated the demiurge creator that doesn't care about the course of humanity and the logos who's created by Sophia. And he sort of makes his theology fit and it actually answers the problem of evil and why God does certain things. And I thought that that, that to me was more, it made more sense, which is why I pursued that path. But I want to hear what you thought to respond to Derek. I don't want to get too much off course. Well, I, I think in some way, I mean, Jacob, I've loved Esau. I've hated. Well, Esau's hatred looked pretty good. I mean, you know, by the time Jacob comes wandering back to, to Canaan, um, Esau's in a Jacob's word, Esau's going to kill him. And Esau says, no, I'm all right. My 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 second tier birthright was was pretty darn good. That's a good point. So what's the, what's the point that Paul is making there? The point that Paul is making there is God picks and chooses. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then we say that that, that before our, they were born, right? Right before they before they were born. No. Well, yeah. let's let's compare myself with a a crippled person born in Haiti. Mm -hmm. And if we understand God to be 
all of this, well, someone could easily look at me and say, well, look at Vanderclay. He's living a, a middle-class life. Or let's look, let's use Elon Musk. Let's go up instead of down. Someone might say, Elon God loved, PVK God hated. PVK only has 20,000 subs. Elon, he's sending stuff into space. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, this these, so, but, these but are I, difficult I'm, questions. Are you now, saying I think, this is again, temporal? What's is that? this a temporal situation that we're dealing with? I'm speaking for eternity. I, I'm wondering how that would fit into... And, and I think this is part of the difficulty. Again, when I talked about the way that philosophy turned and the way that a lot of these a lot of these conversations turned it sort of sets up a narrative that is exactly how you describe and i i don't think it works because i don't think on one hand to say we have a god who picks and chooses well he chose elon musk for wealth and fame and glory and all of that stuff and he chose pvk for this crappy little dying church on florin road <laughs> elon god loved pvk god hated pretty clear and um okay i i see i don't see that as some crazy statement well we're, we're ignoring and I think, hell i think nine through eleven has a lot to do with so i'm actually working on the book of romans but it's probably going to be a year until i get to chapter nine so you have to wait for the video but um and i'm really going to dig into it when i go through this but I I see people as like okay I can't I can't buy a god that picks and chooses. Well then why did he make Elon? Well then you say okay so there's no god who picks and chooses. It's that Elon. Well why is Elon a master of the universe and PVK is just has a, a a shitty little YouTube channel? I, we can't answer these questions. But I I respect that you just have that answer. Is it? It's a mystery. I don't know. Rather than trying to pull it off from some Bible verse somewhere and just give me an answer that makes no sense, and just you'll be okay. I respect that. That's all I got. You know, that's that's. And and I think when it gets to Paul dealing with the question of the Jews in his context, you the you do get to the problem of divine election because the Jews are God, the Jews are God's chosen people. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the history of the Jews, they would be forgiven to say, please go choose someone else. <laughs> because, you know, we got we got Mesopotamia to the north. We got Egypt to the west. Um, you know, we had a little day in the sun between the second half of David's life and Solomon. And then the whole thing came up. And somehow we maintain our national, our, our ethnic, cultural identity all the way through to the 21st century and a lot of the time in places like europe we get beat up go choose someone else and i think so then even there in romans 9 through 11 paul is wrestling with this question that for him in the context was very difficult because paul on one hand is trying to make figure out who jesus is and how he fits into the jewish story and make this accessible to romans and he's got a good number of his own countrymen who say to him, including friends of mine right now that say that Paul of Tarsus can't stand. Um, Paul, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. You know, you were a, you, you were one of us. And now suddenly you had some laps on the road to Damascus. What's wrong with you? So Paul's got questions on both sides. 
And so part of what he's doing, I think, in Romans is trying to figure out, all right, well, what on earth is God doing? And will God's promise to these people finally come to fruition? And that's a hard thing for Paul because, of course, Paul sees Jesus in line with that story of Israel. Right. Right. There's a lot of things you brought up there and uh, I'm we're tracking as far as a lot of what's going on in Paul's letter in Romans. I'm like, we're on the same page in many respects to what he's trying to do, especially that what's this Gentile thing. Hold on. What? Uh, and the Jews have rejected. There's a stumbling block taking place, which supersessionism ends up coming up on the scene for this very reason. But um, you talked about the nat- like the whole idea of Israel, throughout its history from Northern kingdom, Southern kingdom, Judah, the whole nine, there seems to be, they get bullied and beat up every time we turn around. And I think the suffering servant motif, this philosophy actually develops uh, through this, these issues of every big brother beating them up, every nation that conquers them. So it's, they're not like other nations in the respect that they give up the God and follow the new deity. Some do, don't get me wrong. That's why there's laws prohibiting you following after other gods, worshiping other gods. Stop, guys, you're doing the wrong thing. But uh, I'm personally thinking these this literature is written from a higher elite class of priests that are probably writing the new the Hebrew Bible, Septuagint. And um, that development takes place where you start to see it's internalized. It's our fault. Billy, why didn't you keep the Sabbath? Now Assyria is conquering us. What'd you do? I mean, like, that's exactly right. I think that's what they're doing. And I personally, where I'm at today, would look at that and say, no, come on. Really? Because you didn't keep the Sabbath. God's going to have men, women, and children killed, raped, pilled, like the whole nine, because they didn't keep certain ordinances of their God. It To me, that's just uh, maybe anachronistic. And maybe you will say, yeah, this is late in the game and people weren't thinking this way necessarily all the time. Um, I wouldn't say there aren't a voice here or there in history that probably thought this way, but I'm looking at that thinking that just doesn't add up to me. It doesn't make sense to me in my experience in the world I live in. Well, it's hard for us to undo the Enlightenment because that was the question of the Enlightenment. I mean, and so, so okay, so you've got your you've got your mass in your local Roman Catholic Church, and this is the body of Christ, and so some people are sneaking it out to feed their cow, their sick cow, because. You know, this is the body of Christ. And if I get my body of Christ into my sick cow, you know, then my cow will be okay. And of course, the Protestant Reformation does this sort of demythologizing on on the sacramental vision of the world. And that, of course, has its roots in in a lot of things that happened before. So I I completely understand where you would say, yeah, well, you know, the, you know, um, Chronicles, the Chronicler. Well, why on earth would we imagine that God sent the Babylonians down to destroy us because we didn't keep the covenant? And that's a very hard thing for us to try to get our minds around because that worldview is something that we don't exact that some I let me say I would say that 15 to 20% of us don't inhabit. I'd say most, almost everyone else does, mm-hmm. especially if you're maintaining a belief in karma. Um, <laughs> because it's your it's your failures at one point that bring in the divine retribution in another mm-hmm. point. Yeah, we have all of these ideas today that, and I should probably drive less because I'm destroying the world with my car. 
you say, well, yeah, but we have all these ideas about karma, carbon and, and all of these. And is it just your car that's destroying the world? No, it's all of our cars. Oh, so we're participating in something larger. And actually, you know, if when I get down, I mean, why am I, why on earth did Jordan Peterson get interesting for me? Well, it wasn't just Jordan Peterson. It was what he caused in the people around him, yep. which began getting into questions of where do these ideas of our agency and what is the divine and how we relate, where do these ideas come from? And are they really quite so crazy? So I, you know, part of what, part of, part of what, how I differ from, let's say, a lot of fundamentalists is part of what happened in the modernist fundamentalist fight was modernists sort of doubled down on historical participation and fundamentalists sort of said no. So you had this big fight back and forth. But most, most of the older traditions of Christianity say the God of creation is the God of history. And so it isn't that the book flopped out of the heavens or an angel sort of delivered it to you. It's that through the process of history, through this long agonizing series of failures that the Hebrews had with like, it's, is, is it because our covenant doesn't work or because we're not doing it right? That Ezekiel winds up outside of Babylon and has to figure out, well, is, is God just a local God? And here he shows up out of Babylon. And here he says things like, it was God who destroyed the temple. And it's like, that doesn't make any sense. And then, of course, jump ahead to Christ. And it was God, it was the wrath of God that comes down upon the Son of God. And it's like, that's going to take a few centuries to try to get our heads around. And so there's all of this process. And I agree, that process continues today, and we're, in fact, participating in it now. Could you say that the but, reason why this process is taking place is for the sake of there being some result from having, let's say, the Hebrews experience what they experienced with the Babylonian exile and so on and so forth, where there is this 4D, 5D chess in progress with whatever's going on. It's the Jews are still with us. I mean, I, I don't go down the street and find a temple of Marduk. There's something to that. Well, that's yeah. debatable. Well, you're looking at one right now, by the way. Not a Mardukian priest, but a Jew. Uh, and, not and, not religious, but yeah. But but what, what I'm saying is that the conversation has continued, and and the the most striking thing. I mean, one of my favorite. I mean, Tom Holland, I've got his book right here. I point to him a lot in my videos. It's a rather remarkable thing that this someone who was born into um, obscurity, who at least during the time of his life, hardly anyone mentioned except his disciples, finally became the center of focus for much of the Western world and then eventually must, much of the world, someone who purported to be something like the son of God, died on a Roman cross and changed history because of it. Mm. Now you can say, well, history is just weird. All right. It's very weird indeed. But in some ways, the best language to use is religious to talk about these kinds of things. And so uh, it's mm. good to talk about. Well, well yeah, can you I, also I, say, oh, go on, Derek. No, I just, there's so many differences here that we have, Paul, that I once was like everything you were saying, I'd say amen to back like eight years ago. I'd be like, amen, brother. Amen. And, uh, 
it's just there's so many things I I would ask. Let's start with first proving a lot of these things. Prove that your God is true. Prove that this God is the real one. Um, what about the other ancient Near Eastern gods? Or when Plato says that uh, it was the gods who flooded Atlantis, if that even exists, um, you know, most people think it's probably a myth. But you know, what kind of sins did they commit? Are their gods really the ones, or was it Yahweh who actually went and flooded Atlantis? You know, there's all these questions. I would ask for to be more cautious than to jump to these conclusions. And um, like, for example, if I may ask, were you born into this? Were you born a Christian? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The- yeah. yeah. So was there ever a time in That's your life? That's very Calvinist you- of me to be born I- <laughs> into it. <laughs> was there ever a time in your life where you, where you actually left the faith altogether or were you always in the faith and found a way to keep going? There, there have very much been times when my faith has been tested. I'll say it that way. And I, in my experience, almost anyone who can give cogent answers to critical questions are because they have, if not hopped the line quietly, at least struggled over the line. So, so technically, you're, this, is, this is honest, you know? I mean... It, yeah. I get it. I struggled with the same thing. And of course I just drew different conclusions. I started with a different, uh, starting Mm -hmm. point. Yeah. Well, well said, by the way, I want to make sure Gio, you had a question that you wanted to ask. And then I want to go to the super chats, by the way, the queen of the chat right now is mother superior with $50 super chat. And I look forward to reading that one. Is that in, is that in dollars? In dollars. Yeah. U S dollars, baby. It's a big one guys. (laughs) Cha-ching, yes. So, uh, Gio, uh, you had a question. Make no. sure they have agency, big yeah, well, agency for yes, that one. Yes, exactly. Or, <laughs> or a comment, I don't know. No, I mean, I forget. I think it was something about um, Paul was talking about the Enlightenment and its particular um, eschatology that it's brought about the world. It's sort of eminentizing of it. Uh, but I think, like, but at the same time, I mean, through your work, you're very critical of any system that wants to challenge or at least um, occlude certain elements to? of the... Inla- no, you, 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 Paul. I mean, you're okay, very critical okay. of I, projects that want to occlude at least certain parts of the Enlightenment project, so I don't, I'm confused at that. I mean, you're very critical of uh, Lev's favorite Russian philosopher, so... <laughs> Sorry, Who's your favorite, favorite Russian philosopher? I'm joking. It's a joke, by the way. Oh, but, okay. Uh, <laughs> Lev, do you do you want to? I shall I shall not yeah. say the demon's name, right, Lev? No, uh, no, but... <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, you had a video where you were talking about Alexander Dugan, and oh, I yes, yeah. yeah, so and about the current state of Russia, and we can get into that later on. I don't really want to make this a street, yeah, a street. No, about but I mean, I, I'm just. I think the problem is with people. Maybe well, not Jonathan Pajot, our good friend, but I mean, particularly with the uh, let's say the Petersonites, if you will, the IDW, is that they're not willing to cross over that line to actually critique the root of the problem, whether it's Peterson or James Lindsay or, um, I don't know, think of all the other dark web, oh, sorry, dark web types, sorry. Um, Sorry. Um, It's like they're not willing, I think, to question their own sacred cows, if you will, particularly when it comes to uh, the enlightenment and so forth. I think that's the big problem. Uh, 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm a I'm a Christian, so I'm parts of me are, are pre-enlightenment, but the Enlightenment has deeply influenced us all. Yeah. Including, I mean, I mean no, including, that is true. including yeah. Peugeot. Yeah. Mm. yeah yeah it's inescapable obviously i think like yeah. that that's again a problem that a lot of reaction figures make as well i mean there really is um not that there's no escape but rather there has to be recognition that we as well live in the conditions of you know a post-enlightenment world but anything else you know? mm. so. well there we are fellas i am going to go to the super chats right now and boy do we have a lot of great super chats tonight so, and by the way, all the people who are watching this, if you have not subscribed right now, what are you doing? Do you realize how much power you have to make Break the Rules succeed through Lev, all the algorithms? You should yes. offer indulgences here at this moment because then they could buy their way. <laughs> okay, That's sorry, sorry. I had to. What does YouTube know. purgatory look like? You, well, you know, you now, that the, now that the metaverse, now that the metaverse is coming up, people are going to have, you know, their uh, their souls trapped in the servers forever. So BTR oh. can have its own metaverse. Well, we're going to make that, it as close to heaven as possible. We no, but that's what, I, that's what I mean. That's what I'm getting at, I think, <laughs> the beginning of the stream is that, like, it's it's like when Agamemnon says that biopower was always a reality if you look at, like, um, like, if you look at, you know, for example, in Roman law, you have the homo sacer, for instance. I think that the simulation, it's such a, you know, in vogue thing now to talk about. I think simulation was always there from the beginning. Like we could talk about whether it's like, um, like the archons or Neoplatonism or so forth. I think like these ideas are much older than we think. Um, it's just that now that we have this sort of technological overlay to truly materialize these concepts. It's like, it's like what Sam Chris said about the new matrix movie. It's like the matrix series. The reason Bo Jared hated it so much is because it really gives like a weighty material element to these philosophic concepts. It's like, it's literally just giving you a cinematic picture of like, well, now your brain is going to physically download materially into a machine. It's like that, that in itself is sort of like a reductionistic approach to these ideas that I think are like much more, ancient than we think you know so yeah i think that that it it would just be an additional layer to plato's uh cave to have a lot of these things in there yeah and like it's also crazy like how like there was this very brief moment he said i would love to get sam chris on the show there's this very brief moment he said in time where hollywood was like willing to critique its own apparatus its own culture industry whereas like nowadays he said like the narrative in most of social institutions is listen and believe it's not like question everything now it's like listen and believe. No, it's uh, so, educate yourself. That, that's educate the, yourself. Educate yeah, yourself, exactly. Yeah. So, and before I go further, I just want to say once again, adding a like definitely helps. Uh, clicking the bell definitely helps so that you get notifications. And by the way, there is going to be a very interesting stream. I usually plug this in the end, but I'm going to plug it right now. There is going to be a very interesting stream coming up on Thursday with Rose of Dawn and with Nina Paley joining in. And this was a word that was actually said today. Uh, this is the title of the stream, transubstantiation. I am so sorry for that pun. I am oh, so sorry. T- why? Why? <laughs> I had to do Rose it. Of Dawn love? I had to do it. Oh, Rose of Dawn, she's a wonderful uh, trans YouTuber, but she's like not an SJW. She's, yes, yeah, so... It's gonna be. It's it's gonna be That's a, a very tumor. clever way of uh, making a, a channel. Avoiding the algorithm. 
Yes, it's gonna be oh it's gonna be a God. lot of fun. It's I, 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 total disaster. <laughs> no, I look forward to that. And by oh, and by the way, Paul, do you know Nina Paley or no? No. If you okay, so if you're not familiar with her work, she is a wonderful animator, and she recently, and I think this is still a project that's ongoing. She is animating the Book of Revelation. So if you go to apocalypseanimated.com, you are going to see some of the most wonderful gifs of all time, basically documenting the entire thing. The lamb opening the seals. Let's see if I could just share this one real quick here in the, uh, in the chat. But anyway, guys, subscribe right now. And okay, here we go. I just want to share this one little gif. There is so much more there. But you see over here, there's the lamb. And, uh, well, you see. say Jif? Yeah, Jif, yeah. Yeah, it's Gif. No, it's Jif. It's Gif. Oh, my. Oh. All right, but you see the lamb, right? You see the lamb with the seals. Isn't that cute? In the chat. Uh, okay, anyway. Anyway, she's got a lot Another of Another beautiful... Lev posting is L. She's got a lot of beautiful. Well, my name is L. So it starts with an L. Okay, oh. she's got a lot of beautiful animation, so be sure to check it out. But anyway, wow. patreon.com slash break the rules. If you like beautiful artwork, well, I'm going to get to the artwork in a minute. In general, when you become a $5 patron, you are going to get MP3s of the episodes, including this one, before they come out to the public. You are going to get Patreon exclusive streams, which uh, Break the Rules has started doing uh, recently again so patreons patrons sorry can actually be in the stream with the guests ask any question they want and it's a lot of fun you know we get to know each other better it's great as well as being able to post uh images and links in this patreon chat over here so if you notice this discord chat here i'm pointing this way if you notice the discord chat on the uh, upper right hand side if you become a patron you have full power to post images but once again that's a that's a privilege not a right so don't do anything that'll take the channel off and 20 dollar patrons are going to get a beautiful magnet created by my father alexander polyakov here is a picture of some of the magnets that you can get made out of fine wood very beautiful quality i'm gonna put a bigger one over here in the um in the obs for you guys to uh take a gander oh that's the other one i'm gonna get to that one in a second here let me post the other magnet here we go look at this beautiful uh beautiful wood magnet over here of the moth as well as these are the designs my father is an amazing artist so i highly recommend that you take advantage of of this uh, of this offer, become a twenty dollar patron and get these beautiful magnets. When you become a thirty dollar patron, you lucky you are going to get a very beautiful Patreon print created by none other than Gio Penichetti, and this is from the TFW uh, No GF series. It is a beautiful print made in the uh, Japanese woodblock printing uh, technique style. And last but not least, if you become a $50 patron, you are going to get this absolutely beautiful dragon. Let me grab this dragon and make it bigger for you guys. So this is if you're a fan of Sticks Hex and Hammer 666, you're going to get this dragon. And if you are not a fan of Sticks, you are going to get a custom magnet. So instead of getting the magnet, which is like a random magnet, you are going to get, if you want, I don't know, Kermit the Frog, as long as we don't get sued by Disney, you can get like a nice little looking Kermit the Frog magnet or uh, uh, whatever, whatever you want, whatever your heart desires within reason. 
once again. So, yeah, I get a little monkey man there. So, yeah, there we go. Patreon.com slash break the rules. I'm going to post the link one more time. Patreon.com slash break the rules. Here's the link. I'm posting the link. Go there. What are you waiting for? Go there right now. Open that up in the new tab. Anyway, finally, before we end this thing, and this is a wonderful stream, really enjoyed it. Let us get to the super chat. So, here we go. We have. <clears throat> All right, Ted Francis, 499, came here from Myth Vision and Gnostic Informant. Thank you very much for the sneed, Ted. The ABC1234563992. Hi, this is Paul. I don't know what that is a reference to. Any idea, Gio? All right, probably the Prophet Paul. Anyway. Uh, the ABC. Uh, it's, it's how I open all my videos. I don't oh. have any intro. It's oh, just, yeah, yeah. Hi, this there is Paul, go. and off I go. That's, there that's we what go. that's about. And the ABC, $2. Where is Fez, my lord? Geo? Oh, well, it was a serious stream, so <laughs> I'm sure next stream where we're totally not going to get into the weeds politically, I'll wear my Fez, so. Yes. Yeah. All right. And Toxicity009. Okay, 300. Toxicity, like the the, uh, the System of a Down album? To it's like T-O-X-I-C-I-T-Y. Oh. Oh, and weird. MKD, let's see, what is MKD? Is this real money? So MKD 300, let's see, to USD. Let's see what, okay, that's, oh, 5.37 US dollars. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, says, uh, do you think God needs love? No, 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 sorry. Do you think God needs to evolve again in today's modernity into something which will better suit the next post-human race? No, that's, that's terrifying. No, <laughs> terrible. That's that's a deep question right there. I think I think that could be another episode. Ah, uh, very. We need a Butlerian jihad right away. We need to it, this. We need to smash the machines before that. See, every time I think of that, I think of like these beat up butlers just like outside in the street. And it's like <laughs> oh, <you can> like <laughs> in those ISIS uniforms. Love is that? No, I'm no, just did, thinking of some poor butler from... being beat up because he's not needed anymore. It's horrible. Oh, okay, yeah. next. Internet friend, two Canadian dollars. Oh, this my good friend, Internet friend. This stream needs St. Augustine quotes. Well, we talked about some uh, St. Augustine as well later on, I think, after the super chat. Uh, Canadian, <laughs> Canadian Catholic, two Canadian dollars. Why are Derek's and Neil's channels so similar? Why does he always say that? I've heard that from him like three times. I don't know. It's like how Corn and Cold Chamber were similar. I think the same reason that Paul might have similar channels to other people within his congregation and community. Uh, they're interested in the same topics. Uh, we come from similar backgrounds. Me and him both spent time in the like legal system. Uh, yep. We both struggled with addiction. Um, he's my identical twin. I'm just kidding uh, on that part. But no, uh, it, it's valid question. There's your answer. There we go. And uh, Sydney Lamachi, 199. Oh, Ah, uh, no, no. See, I don't even want to read this. Look. Say it, say it. Uh, it's, it's amazing. All right. All right. Gio is a Fedora 4chan Catholic. Love Myth Vision. <laughs> what is that? Who what does that? that even mean? Who said that? <laughs> Cindy Lamachi. <laughs> Fedora 4chan? Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, well, man. Yeah. No, That's look, I, 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 I love Gio. Gio's a good dude. You know, like, you've got a good heart. Even though I completely disagree with your political views, you've got a good heart. All right. 
All right, next. ABC123, $2. Paul speaks on levels of agency. And uh, last super chat, and man, man, oh man, the Shevitz, as my uncle used to say. That's actually not my line. I listen to so much P90X, like I do the warm-ups, and uh, he said that line, so I remember it. And, uh, okay, Mother Superior, $50. $50. That's what I'm talking about, $50. And Mother Superior says, Paul Vanderslay. Ah. Oh, and Massive Massive McGee, 2GBP. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, British pounds. Sterling. Sterling. There we go. Will Neil and Derek please remove their hats? No. Oh! Oh! Oh, there there you go. go. That's decent. That's kind of like a faux hawk. There we are. All right. So this is the <laughs> PCSS. We need to get Paul on again to talk more about yeah. oh. politics. Oh, there we go. Oh. Just so oh, we can all have cool. something here. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, this is it. Thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate I love doing these Break the Rules streams. Once again, be sure to subscribe, subscribe, add a like. The likes always help the algorithm. Share the stream with everybody you know who would be into these kind of conversations. Break the Rules brings all the people together from the different sides to have these kind of things happen. And I appreciate all of you guys watching. And when the stream is over... Oh, Nick Larson, 499. God bless you all, and thank you for the stream. Big fan of Paul. Would love to see him on again. I would. It would definitely be yeah. an honor to have you, Paul, and it would definitely be an honor to have you back, uh, Derek, as well. So thank you guys so much. I am ending the stream right now. Please have a Dude. wonderful rest of your oh, week. Oh, yeah, I'm doing the two-sweep, by the way, before we end the stream. RIP to Scott Hall, who those are wrestling fans. He unfortunately mm. passed away recently. So RIP Scott Hall, two-sweep. NWO for life. There you go. There we go. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Mwah. See you. God bless. Goodbye. All right.